Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Now we're going to turn to some history. We're going to, we're going to learn about Maryland here because, well, those of us who live here may know some of this, but the rest of you may not. So our next presenter, and I see is here. Thank you so much is Tracy Nykirk, um, Museum Operations Coordinator from the Annapolis Maritime Museum. There's a lot of history about Maryland and the ocean and the, and the bay and stuff. So, Tracy? How is everyone today? We're great. All right. Fine. Thank you Thanks. so much. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I'm just going to share my screen because <clears throat> for those who um, may have a little vision, might like to see uh, some of the images. For Give me a second. So, so the Annapolis Maritime Museum is a um, a small uh, nonprofit museum that sits right on Back Creek, which faces the Chesapeake Bay. So, the museum was an oyster house originally, and the uh, watermen in something called a byboat, we'll talk about in a little bit, used to bring their oysters to this building and offload them and process them and can them and send them off. So the building has been turned into a maritime museum that talks um, about the Chesapeake Bay and also the ecology of the Chesapeake Bay because oysters are important to the ecology. So I'm going to speak on that as well um, in my presentation. So I have to say um, the building itself is an old cinder block building. It's very cold. So uh, think of me sitting around in my long underwear uh, <laughs> in the in the very cold building. Um, but the for those of you who are not in Maryland, um, other parts of the country, you have to think about the Chesapeake Bay as being 200 miles long. So it is a very long body of water, um, and it has a lot going on with it. Now the bay itself was originally a riverbed for the Susquehanna River. The Susquehanna River starts in New York State, uh, works its way down through Pennsylvania, Lancaster, um, into Maryland. And before the the last ice age, it created a riverbed, a great gigantic riverbed. But as the glaciers started to melt and pull back, uh, those are the same glaciers that pulled back and scraped off the Midwest to create the uh, Great Lakes. Um, the water rose and backed into um, the riverbed of the Susquehanna. So the Chesapeake Bay is actually a former riverbed. And it's a unique estuary. It is the third largest estuary in the world. And it's also the largest estuary in the United States. Estuary meaning that it is a nursery for all kinds of plants and animals and a very, very um, diverse uh, ecology for that. Now, the Chesapeake Bay, because it was a riverbed originally, um, has some width issues. So in Aberdeen, Maryland, it is four miles wide, not very wide. At the bottom of the bay towards the uh Atlantic Ocean at Cape Charles in Virginia Beach, it is 30 miles wide. So it varies from time to time. The Chesapeake Bay is on the average only 21 feet deep. 
So it is not very, and a lot of the shallows are under six feet deep. The deepest point is like a very odd hole um, near Bloody Point, Maryland, uh, which has a lighthouse at it at 174 feet. So um, the bay is kind of shallow um, and it is tidal. So the Chesapeake Bay has a tidal influence from the Atlantic Ocean all the way up past Baltimore. Um, so the water is what they call brackish or salty. So the salinity goes down from Virginia Beach all the way up to Baltimore, um, almost completely fresh at the Susquehanna River. Now, the Susquehanna River puts the most fresh water into the Chesapeake Bay. And this is important today because the Chesapeake Bay has a watershed that covers New York, um, it covers uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, and all of those areas, whatever it comes into the Susquehanna River will eventually come into the Chesapeake Bay. So uh, the Chesapeake Bay is an interesting body of water. There's uh, thousands and thousands of people that live on the Chesapeake Bay. Of course, the capital of our country is on the Chesapeake Bay, on the Potomac River of uh, Washington, D.C. Um, it has uh, two states covering it. So it's a very important body of water that we sit on here in Maryland. So the, the first residents of Maryland and this part of the Chesapeake Bay uh, moved into the region 10,000 years ago. So Native American groups moved here. Many of them spoke Algonquin. But because the Chesapeake Bay is an estuary, a nursery per se, um, it's home to many, many tribes. Um, most of them are what they call woodland um, Indians. They hunted, they gathered, they eventually grew corn, beans, and squash, but they found a region around the Chesapeake Bay as a wonderful place, very fertile soil. They also discovered uh, a root plant kind of farther up the rivers called Tuckahoe. Uh, Tuckahoe is a root vegetable that is similar to a potato or cassava uh, that you peel and boil. Uh, they also found the, the Chesapeake Bay and some of its tributaries to be a wonderful uh, nursery for um, uh, seafood um, that we like to eat, as well as um, some other plants. So there's a number, um, there where Moco, the Akamak, you've heard of the Pamunkey, um, You've heard of the, maybe the Chop Tank, um, of course, the Potomac, um, in, in the Chesapeake Bay region. So there were a number of Native American groups in this area. So they also, they did a lot of fishing. Um, there's no images of the Native peoples that lived here in the, um, you know, of course, uh, 3,000 years ago, and even up to the English uh, attempts at settlement in the 1600s. No one sat, thought to sit down and draw pictures of these folks. Uh, so the only images we really have of Algonquin woodland Indians living um, in coastal regions came from John White, uh, who was famous from Roanoke, the Outer Banks of North Carolina and the Lost Colony you may have heard of. So we can kind of guess what their life was like. We do know they used dugout canoes, which will be important later on the Chesapeake Bay. We do also know that they um, they captured fish and smoked fish and different animals. And we know that they uh, gathered oysters. And how do we know we gathered oysters? Is because there's things around the Chesapeake Bay called oyster beds. Archaeologists love oyster middens because what they are is a big pile of used oyster shells. Native people would collect oysters, eat the oysters, and throw them in a big pot. 
And, you know, archaeologists love trash piles. And so uh, some of these oyster middens, these piles of oyster shells, um, date to 3,200 years ago. Um, and they are not, if you think like a rock banging into them or there's no um, fire on them. So they must have cooked them maybe in a pot to open them up. Uh, maybe put them on a grill, um, but there is, you know, not a lot of damage to them. So they must have had a pretty easy way to open it. And opening oysters can be very treacherous. If you don't know what you're doing, you can cut your hand really easy with the modern oyster knife. So along the Chesapeake Bay, they find these oyster mittens. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard of the uh, uh, Princess Pocahontas, the uh, Palatan's daughter who interacted with the Jamestown colonist. Um, um, they actually found the site of where Palatan's village was on the York River. And one of the things they discovered and were able to date were the oyster piles that they had there, the oyster bins um, in that. So oysters were very plentiful in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, they actually grow on top of each other. Uh, so they almost broke the surface in some of the areas of the Chesapeake Bay. And remember, it's only about 21 feet deep in certain regions. Um, but we do know that the native if peoples did not over-harvest uh, the oysters, they did not go all out with them um, and over-harvest them. So there were plenty of oysters, and unfortunately, over-harvest is what's impacting our oysters today. So uh, back to Pocahontas and Captain John Smith, who uh, she's famous for interacting with. But John Smith took a voyage in 1608 in which he traveled out of Jamestown down what we call the James River today, and up the Chesapeake Bay, and he mapped the region. And he created one of the first maps of the Chesapeake Bay uh, by the Europeans. And this map um, actually has a number of islands. Historians can go back and look at Tugman Island. They can look at Kent Island, these different islands, as well as the peninsulas along the Chesapeake Bay. And he um, documented um, oysters and said that they were a navigational hazard that you could run into oyster beds. And he also observed the native peoples eating oysters and cooking oysters. So John Smith was important to the Chesapeake Bay because of his mapping of it um, with that. So when John Smith mapped the Chesapeake Bay, he mapped an area around the Potomac River. Um, and that area was picked up by the Calvert family. Um, Cecil Calvert was the son of the first Lord Baltimore, and they received a patent for land from King Charles uh, I to uh, settle in the new colony of Virginia, which you know, Maryland, every, everything was Virginia <laughs> um, at that time. And um, the Calverts uh, set up a colony because uh, Cecil Calvert's father had just converted to uh, Catholicism, a place where uh, Catholics from England could could come and worship um, Catholicism. Um, if you remember back to Henry VIII and the breaking off of the Catholic Church and development of Anglicanism, Catholics were not necessarily welcome in England. So if they had a place to go um, and set up a colony uh, where they could um, practice religious freedom, um, they were willing to make that trip across the Atlantic Ocean. So there were two ships, the Ark and the Dove, 
that landed um, on a, what they call St. Clement's Island off in the Potomac River um, in uh, 1634. Now on the ships were not only Catholics, but there were also Protestants on board. And there was a few Quakers that will be thrown in to St. Mary City, but St. Mary City was the first um, English colony in Maryland. It was a small uh, community that actually took over um, the Native American village site that was there. And there, St. Mary's City is a historic site now that can be visited. And they are doing more interpretation, talking about the Native peoples that were there. Uh, but St. Mary's City um, was well known in the state of Maryland, was well known for its religious tolerance. Um, not that they always, everybody got along um, all the time, but there were Quakers, Protestants, Catholics. In the um, in what was the Maryland colony, and there were laws passed for religious freedom. Many of the Catholics um, would allow the Protestants to worship in their church at a different time. Uh, so it was a very um, interesting time in the early history of Maryland. Now, as with the Virginia colony, uh, the Marylanders turned to tobacco as the main product uh, that they grew for cash. Um, tobacco was very labor intensive. Um, so eventually, um, in the early uh, mid 1600s, uh, the uh, colonists started to not only um, employ uh, indentured servants from England, but also African slaves um, arrived to Maryland uh, for those tobacco plantations. So, if I'm, I encourage you, if you're traveling around and would like to go to a lovely site, um, St. Mary's City is in the very bottom of Maryland's western shore uh, called Southern Maryland. And it's a, um, a site that you can uh, wander around learning a little bit more about the colony. Um, and they have a lot of interpretation there that you can stop and um, learn more about what was going on in that early, early time period. So in Colonial Maryland, uh, they decided to move in 1694 to the capital, create a capital in Maryland at a place called Anne Arundel Town. Anne Arundel was Cecil Calvert's uh, wife, uh, named for that. Uh, so Annapolis was uh, brought from Anne Arundel Town. And Annapolis is interesting in that this western shore of Maryland is very high in elevation, almost 300 feet above sea level. So it's kind of very hilly um, in that area. So the uh, capital of Annapolis sits on top of a hill. So many people who sail into Annapolis uh, have to walk up a pretty steep hill to get to the capital. Um, it's not that easy to get to. So the capital of Maryland, uh, the Maryland colony, it was in Annapolis. Um, Annapolis was um, temporarily the seat of government in 1783 and 1784 during the American Revolution when Philadelphia was um, in danger of being attacked by the British. And the other really famous thing that happened in the revolutionary time period was uh, George Washington stopped and the Annapolis at the Maryland um, uh, center at the state house uh, to resign his commission as commander in chief of the Continental Army on December uh, 23rd, 1783. Then he continued uh, from Annapolis to his home at Mount Vernon. Um, Annapolis by driving is probably today, if you don't get stuck on the interstate, um, probably about uh, 45 minutes uh, from Annapolis to um, Alexandria, 
um, Virginia. So it's really not that far away. And so George Washington did stop at Annapolis, some of the bigger towns. So he um, resigned his commission there. So the uh, Annapolis Courthouse, uh, State House is still on top of the hill. Um, it's the legislature still meets there. Uh, Annapolis being the, still the um, capital of the Maryland colony. And so our museum is close right across the creek uh, from Annapolis in the main city there. Uh, we're technically in the town of Eastport, uh, which has been brought in um, to uh, the zip code of Annapolis. So um, early on, the English discovered that uh, there was fishing in the Chesapeake Bay. One of the early ways they would go fishing is they would take fishing poles out. And, uh, they would go fishing in the bay. Um, they also would go fishing with uh, weirs, uh, which are nets that they would place in the bay, similar to what the native peoples were doing uh, to catch them. And they also would take a ceramic pot, like a flower pot, and they would uh, tie a string in it in the hole in the bottom and they would make a line of them and they would drop them into the water and then they would come back um, in a day or so and there would be a crab in there. And this is where you talk about crab pots. Today, crab pots are made out of metal wire. Uh, but at the time, originally, crab pots were actual pots. Uh, made out of ceramic uh, material that they would put some little bit of bait in, uh, maybe a piece of fish, and then the crab would go in there and get caught. So um, crabs were very, very difficult to uh, catch um, up until the modern crab pot with that. So some of the species that they would go out in their canoes were, were sturgeon. Now sturgeon were endangered in the Chesapeake Bay region, um, but they also were popular. They would catch them with hooks. Uh, they also count, um, would catch shad, which is another kind of bony fish, which is still very popular in the Chesapeake Bay region uh, for political shad planking um, with that and Native American groups do that. And then they use their seine nets um, that, to catch fish. There was a wild abundance of fish um, in the Chesapeake Bay. So during the American Revolution, just a little bit about the uh, state of Maryland is that there were no major battles during the American Revolution in the state of Maryland, which was great for Maryland. Um, many troops um, were mustered and fought in the Continental Army from New York to Virginia. Um, but Maryland did have some difficulties with loyalists, those who still supported the British crown and the revolutionary. So there were tensions um, in not only the Maryland State House, but in uh, communities around Maryland um, over loyalist and revolutionaries uh, with that. Kind of moving into uh, another war. So there was a, you know, War of 1812. Most of you probably don't remember learning about it, or if you did a little bit, because it's kind of a, a small war back with the British. But the War of 1812 really significantly impacted Maryland, because one of the goals of the British um, troops was to capture the United States Capitol, which is Washington, D.C., on the Potomac River. But to get to the Potomac River, you have to sail up the Potomac River, which on one side is Maryland, and on the other side is Virginia. So along the way, they were um, attacking different points. They also attempted to uh, get to uh, Washington, D.C., up the, uh, excuse me, the Patuxent River, 
um, which is also in Maryland, um, and then into Baltimore uh, to come down from northern part of Baltimore south into Washington, D.C. So there was a what they called the Chesapeake Campaign, where the British sent troops and ships um, in an effort to uh, capture Washington. And of course, if you remember correctly, they did uh, get into Washington, um, burnt many of the buildings, including the White House. And, you know, Dolly Madison was uh, famous for saving the portrait of George Washington um, at that point. So Maryland was definitely um, impacted by the War of 1812. And the most famous thing that happened uh, as part of the Chesapeake campaign and the War of 1812 was the battle for Baltimore. So Baltimore um, on the end had a fortification that was built called Fort McHenry. Uh, British vessels were uh, firing at Fort McHenry and they had a prisoner of war uh, from Baltimore named Francis Scott Key sitting on one of those vessels out there. And he was watching that and he penned a poem that eventually became our Star Spangled Banner. So, <laughs> so uh, big happenings there in, in Baltimore. And of course, it never fell and Baltimore was not captured. Baltimore at the time, as well as the uh, capital, Annapolis, was major ports in the Chesapeake Bay. So not only did they bring in um, uh, foodstuffs uh, from like Europe, they also brought um, in slaves. And unfortunately, Baltimore was one of the larger um, slave trading cities in the state of Baltimore um, with that. So um, you start seeing some um, issues with that uh, during the uh, American Civil War. A little bit about the Chesapeake Bay's bountiful harvest. Um, I don't know how many of you like oysters. Uh, some people really like oysters. Some people are like, oh, that's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> look at them. Um, I grew up along the Chesapeake Bay, and I have to admit, I do not like oysters. Um, but I do like blue crabs, another one. And um, a unusual fish called a rockfish or a striped bass is very popular. And these three um, uh, piece animals are endangered or having uh, sustainability issues in the Chesapeake Bay. So rockfish is a really large fish um, that's caught uh, via uh, fishing poles still today. So oysters themselves originally were um, captured using what they call tongs. Now, tongs, if you can think of eight feet long pole, and on the eight foot pole on the very bottom is a giant iron rake. So the little pointy pieces, iron rake, and it's uh, held together like a set of scissors. So what the waterman would do would stand on the edge of his boat drop his eight-foot long tongs into the water, and when he hit the oyster bed, he would use a scissor motion back and forth to try to scrape up and break off the oysters. And then he would pick, pull them up and drop them in the boat and do it all over again. The upper body strength that was required to do something like that is pretty amazing. So these tongs became the easiest way 
to get oysters because the ones that were hitting the surface were quickly uh, harvested from boat. Uh, but these, as you get farther and farther down, the, the tongs get longer and longer. Um, the illustration I put up shows African-Americans working on the water. You find before um, 1862, you have um, slaves that did work on the water. Um, they Even George Washington had slaves that would go out and catch fish and oysters and crabs. And they were some of the original watermen on the Chesapeake Bay. And then after the American Civil War, uh, the freed slaves, the free African-Americans would actually work on the water um, as part of their income. So you will see in uh, many illustrations and discussions about African-American watermen. So it's really hard to use those scissor tongs to reach down and try to scissor up some oysters off of the oyster bed. So they invented what they called a dredge. And a dredge, again, is something that is iron, um, and it has chains on it. And the idea is that they would drag it along the bottom on top of the oyster beds and just pry, in essence, the heavy dredge would pry off the oyster shells. Now, a little bit about how oysters uh, beds form. So when oysters uh, spawn, they release the, the eggs and the sperm into the water column. Once the egg is fertilized, it drops back down on top of a, an existing oyster shell and immediately starts to create a small oyster shell around it, and that is called a spat. And these little spats stick to these larger oysters. And so oysters grow on top of each other. And, you know, as the water, you know, as more oysters grow on top, the bottom ones are obviously bigger and they grow more and more on top of each other. But if there's no oyster shells for the spat to drop on, it rarely adheres to anything and doesn't survive. So you need these oyster beds for oysters to continue to grow. Um, so the dredge, by destroying the oyster bed, by dragging heavy chains and a heavy frame across of it, was um, actually damaging the oyster bed itself so new oysters could not form on top. So these dredges were starting to damage the oyster beds in the Chesapeake Bay. The other interesting thing is that the dredges were first used in the Delaware Bay and around New Jersey and New York. And once they had drudged up all of their oysters, they started coming down to the Chesapeake Bay. And those watermen were coming through the Chesapeake um, Delaware Canal, which is a canal that was cut through the Delarma Peninsula between Delaware Bay and the Chesapeake Bay. And they were dredging oysters on the oyster grounds of Marylanders and Virginians. And this caused a significant problem. So down in the bay, they were uh, using tongs and then the dredgers came. So what happened in 1868, uh, Maryland developed the Maryland Oyster Police Force. And the Maryland Oyster Navy <clears throat> actually uh, tried to run off the uh, Delawareans, the New Jerseyans, and the New Yorkers. And um, it started what they called an oyster war. Uh, now, I know you didn't study the oyster wars in school, <laughs> but the oyster wars 
where were the Marylanders and the Virginians were firing at the New Jerseyans uh, and the Delawareans to, to get off their oyster grounds. And in the museum, the Annapolis Maritime Museum, we actually have a brass cannon that was used by Maryland to fire at these boats uh, that came down from New York and New Jersey. And once they were able to send all those Yankees packing, uh, the oyster wars turned into Virginia and uh, Maryland fighting with themselves. The problem was that the dredging just tore up all the oyster beds and the, the, the number of oysters coming up by the early 1900s was almost um, insignificant compared to what they had earlier. So you have what we call the oyster wars. There's a war you hadn't hadn't quite learned about uh, yet. So also on the Chesapeake Bay, uh, because of its unique um, uh, tidal creeks, and and it was also unique um, in that it had, you know, wind currents coming over the flat area of the eastern shore. uh, So different boats uh, were developed. Uh, One called a skipjack, um, one called a J-boat, and a lot of these are still actually raced today. So Annapolis is kind of famous for its J-boat racing. So the native peoples in the Chesapeake Bay region created a dugout canoe. And the dugout canoe was a single log that they would catch fire in and scrape out, (coughs) excuse me, the charcoal. And they continued to do that until they got the shape of the log that they wanted. Now, because the forests were so much larger, trees were so much bigger. Um, some of the canoes they created were very large and could um, take 30 or 40 people um, into different locations. And some of them were small. Women would use smaller ones to go into the shallow areas to, to dig for Tuckahoe, um, that root vegetable. But the one log canoe was uh, significant. Now, the English, when they arrived, discovered that they could take this one log canoe and they would add a sail to it. So they developed a sailing canoe. Um, And this sailing canoe was used quite a bit on the Chesapeake Bay by uh, some Native Americans, Africans, and uh, the English settlers. Um, The problem was deforestation. So as they were cutting down trees, the number of really large trees to create a log canoe, one log canoe with, uh, were going away. So they started fitting together multiple logs and they started creating a three log canoe, four log canoe, eight log canoe. So as these trees became smaller and smaller, they created that. And many of the logs were pine logs. and they were fitted together um, and created into kind of a, a U-shaped log canoe. Now, the town I grew up in, Virginia, I have to say I'm a Virginian, um, and Pocosin, Virginia was famous for their Pocosin log canoes because it was a kind of a flat area. It was um, marshy and uh, loblolly pines would grow very tall and straight, and they would use those to create the log canoe which had usually one or maybe two sails on it. And the waterman would take that out and he could stand along the lip on the edge they created and get oysters and they would get crabs or they would get fish. But as time went on, they started taking these log canoes and they would put up to three sails on them. This heavy sailing would allow the boat to go very quickly in the water, but it also caused it to tip. So they started using planks 
off the side of the boat where men would sit and kind of try to keep the boat upright. And so these sailing log canoes became a challenge to race. And so they have sailing log canoe races. And there's still some races with original wooden log canoes, which they sail them with a big, heavy, lots of sail going very quickly. But these guys are running back and forth, um, moving these planks so they can uh, not tip the boat over. So one boat specifically made on the Chesapeake Bay. So log canoes were used for oystering, um, they used for fishing. So a waterman was not just someone who gathered oysters. A waterman was someone who uh, took advantage of all of the seasons, whether it was shad running or it's crab season or the winter it's oyster season. So a waterman took advantage of all of the seasons on the Chesapeake Bay. Some of them used their log canoes. Um, to go hunting. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay is a huge area for migratory birds and migratory uh, ducks and geese would come down from um, Canada on, on their way south and they would actually sit out in their long canoes or a special little punt boat and actually sh shoot the birds and what they called market hunting and sell them to hotels and places so you could have a duck or goose um, on your fancy hotel uh, dining room table. The skipjack um, was kind of evolving from the log canoe. It is a plank boat and is built from rack of eye, which means that the person who built it had no plans. They didn't sketch anything out. They didn't run anything down. They just started creating the boat. And it had uh, two large sails on it. And it was a flat bottom boat. And the importance of a flat bottom boat is that it can hold a lot of cargo and their cargo was primarily oysters. So they would take the sailboat and they would sail out to a location and bring out their eight foot long tongs and drip them, dip them down in the water and gather out mounds and mounds of oysters. So the chip, skipjack became the work boat of the Chesapeake Bay. And it's also the state of Maryland's official boat um, with that. Now, if... Um, the sails kind of uh, fluff a little bit. There's not a lot of wind. They carried with them a little boat on the back that had a motor on it, a gas-powered outboard motor. And they would fit it into the back of that sailing boat and used it to push the boat. It was called a push boat that they carried with them. So they did use a little bit of motoring. But for a long time, the law was to oyster, you had to use an under-sail skipjack to gather the oysters. Now, it's hard to maneuver a heavy boat full of oysters as well as under sail. So what they called a byboat would come up near them and the byboat would take uh, their oysters for them. So who are these watermen? Uh, watermen are someone who work on the water. There's also water women. Um, they are, uh, many of them are African-American. Um, many of them are watermen because their father was a waterman, their grandfather was a waterman. Um, working on the water is a family tradition. There's many regions in uh, Maryland, in the Chesapeake Bay, um, where the, the families, a legacy, a long term of have been watermen passed down from father to son and in the modern times to daughter as well. And as I said, they would uh, go for oysters in the winter. Uh, crabs in the spring and summer, um, shad, rockfish, other fishing, and then to an extent, menhaden, which is a fish that we don't really eat, 
um, but you they use it for fertilizer and uh, in other in oil and other things. So the African-American community has traditionally worked on the water, especially in the Chesapeake Bay region. Um, they, you find them on the water in uh, small areas, um, small enclaves. They were watermen on oysters, crabs, and they're still in a tradition of the African-American community uh, working on the water as freedmen. Um, they worked for themselves. Um, they didn't, they weren't working for anyone specifically. So it gave them a freedom that they didn't necessarily see in some of the towns. So a skipjack full of oysters would have to find some place to sell it. So they would sell it um, basically or give it over to a buy boat. A buy boat was a boat with an engine um, that would take the oysters to a packing house, like uh, the one where the Annapolis Maritime Museum is. But they would give them an oyster token usually. And these were like company money. They would hand these to the uh, watermen. And when they were done with their day, they could show up at that oyster house and get redeem their tokens or cash or in some cases uh, goods. Uh, sometimes um, oyster houses actually had stores associated with them. Um, they would have goods um, with that. So it was a way, um, as they say, a chit to to prove uh, their harvest. And it allowed the watermen on that um, skipjack or later on something called a dead rise um, to uh, stay out longer and gather more oysters. So the building in which I work was originally the McNasby Oyster Company. And the McNasby Oyster Company was founded in 1886 by William Joseph McNasby Sr. And it started out in Baltimore and then it moved to Annapolis, um, Virginia, uh, excuse me, um, Maryland. And um, they also had a oyster house in Virginia and New Jersey. And the idea was, again, you bring the oysters in. uh, There was somebody to shock them. They would put them in um, cans, seal them, cook them, and then ship them out. So with the advent of refrigeration, um, with the advent of train travel, faster travel, um, more and more people got to eat oysters for this. So um, the oysters were shipped in um, special cans that were sealed. So Mr. McNasby's wife was named Pearl. And so his brand of oysters were the pearl oysters and they actually colored the cans in Tiffany blue, that light blue color that uh, Tiffany boxes. Actually, I don't know any Tiffany personally, but I've heard the boxes were a lovely light blue color um, in that. And so they would ship these out by train, a refrigerated train. And there was a warehouse in Akron, Ohio, because believe it or not, the folks in the Midwest like oysters. And oysters became really part of um, a tradition um, in, in, the, um, in the Midwest. Um, I had Midwest relatives and they talk about eating oyster stew on uh, Christmas Eve, maybe oyster stuffing. This is the way the folks in the Midwest in the West to have Chesapeake Bay oysters. So um, with the advent of uh, train transportation, uh, oysters were shipped out to all across the country. Um, the McNasby um, Oyster Company was a major employer in the Eastport area. Um, they would wait for the buy boats. Um, many women were employed as oyster shuckers. Oyster shucking is a hard job. 
Um, when you talk about oyster shucking, you're talking about opening a, a, a bivalve that is unreally, unwilling to get open, open, but they did it very, very quickly. Um, I know in Virginia, Urbana, Virginia actually boasts um, two, two sisters that were the international oyster shucker winners um, uh, with their skill and speed for that. But the boats would come in um, and they would shuck oysters. They always stood on a little um, platform because it was a very wet job. It was usually very cold, um, but they um, shuck the oysters. The oysters were put in a can and then they were heated and cooked. And then um, when, you, when they arrived um, at your door, they were already somewhat cooked. You were just reheating them. Um, packing oysters was improved with refrigeration, cans, the ability to seal cans, not with lead. And so exporting oysters became what the McNasby's did. Um, pearl oysters um, went by truck, train, and boat uh, to around the country. Um, so a little bit of Annapolis, Maryland, and the Chesapeake Bay could be found on dinner tables in Ohio, uh, Minnesota, Colorado, all around the United States. So um, oysters started to pile up the oyster shells. Now, we talked about the Native Americans having oyster bins, but with the dredging and the togging, thousands and thousands of oysters were harvested, and they had gigantic piles, three-story uh, tall piles of oyster shells. And what do we do with them? Well, in the Chesapeake Bay region, everybody had a driveway made out of oyster shells. <laughs> uh, oyster shells were used in making of bricks. Oyster shells were used in making of mortar. Oyster shell calcium carbonate was originally your tums, your antacid. Uh, oyster shells that were used in many different ways. Today, we try to take oyster shells when you eat oysters, and they try to put them back into the Chesapeake Bay, creating that foundation that those little spats can adhere to. So today, it's more of a recycling. Many um, locations, including our museum, has a bucket uh, actually, a bin that you drop your oyster shells in if you bought some fresh oysters. And so they can reuse them and create new oyster beds um, in that. So there is a declining oyster harvest. So between 1860 and 1920, with the dredging um, and the you know increased um ability to um, move oysters to ship them elsewhere um, oysters were really over harvested um, in the Chesapeake Bay um, the the oyster beds were broken up with the dredges and then in the 1950s there were two diseases one called MSX and one called derma um, that were parasites that killed the oysters. Um, in Virginia, there was a pollution called Kipone uh, that was released into the James River, shutting off of all of the James River's uh, oyster beds. And um, other issues like runoff uh, from farms, fields, uh, sewage, um, affected the oysters in the Chesapeake Bay. So the oyster population went from um, over 60 million market size oysters down to currently in uh, 2020, 2020, they had uh, 40 million oysters. And so marketable oysters are the ones that are big enough to have. So when you 
harvest an oyster, you actually have a tool you have to measure the size of the oyster shell. And the size tells you how old it is. And so that you can only have a harvest oysters of a certain size. So the idea is that they're trying to save oysters to grow bigger, to produce more oysters. They're also trying to set into place um, harvesting techniques that are different. And we're also trying to work on runoff and um, things that are coming down the watershed that are affecting the oysters. So what are the things they're trying to do, because um, naturally um, oysters are having a tough time, is oyster farming in the Chesapeake Bay region. Oyster farming is a way to specifically grow oysters. So they usually start the oysters inside in specialized tanks, um, creating little spats of oysters. And then they put them in special you know, wire bins, containers, out into fresh water. So when you look at um, buying seafood and it will say farm raised on it, um, oyster farming is the most unique in that it's not a enclosed tank and they're feeding the fish. It is out in the Chesapeake Bay, Rappahannock River, the Potomac, uh, chop tank rivers. So they're actually using the actual water of the Chesapeake Bay in the region uh, to grow the oysters, but they're in more of a a secure and environment. Um, many people actually grow uh, oysters off their docks. They have the special cages. Um, they get spats. Um, they grow them off their docks, not for personal use, but as they get to a certain size, they give them over to um, the state or the locality, and then they place those in original oyster beds and trying to grow those and make those bigger. Uh, one historian, ecologist, said oyster farming is the way to save the oyster of the Chesapeake Bay. Why do we want to save the oyster of the Chesapeake Bay? Because the oyster helps keep the health of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, the oyster actually filters the water of the bay. There's some debate how quickly they actually filter water, water but the, they filter. The Chesapeake Bay's water um, help take out pollutants, um, help make the water clear so other animals like crabs and fish uh, can see in the bay and find their food in the bay. So oysters are very important, not only for something for us to eat, but also in the Chesapeake Bay um, uh, to clean the bay and make the bay healthy uh, for that. So oysters are part of the Chesapeake Bay culture. Um, today, uh, you may hear uh, people talk about oyster roast in the Chesapeake Bay region. Now, Maryland gets a lot of talk about um, crabs. Uh, <laughs> Maryland has, but Maryland oysters are big. And we're coming up um, to the spring season. And in the, uh, Annapolis and Southern Maryland, they have what they call a sock burning. So if you all have any old socks, um, you can burn your socks and in the springtime, and the idea is you're getting rid of that old used piece and you're getting ready for a new spring harvest, a new popular time. So uh, other areas around the Chesapeake Bay do do a sock burning in that. And we do actually have one of those that we do as a fundraiser at the Annapolis Maritime Museum. So, yeah, think if you have those old holy socks, go ahead and <laughs> and, and maybe have a bonfire with them. So um, just to kind of close a little bit, um, I talked a little bit about the history of Maryland and it history of Maryland is tied to the Chesapeake Bay. 
uh, from the first Native American peoples who lived here maybe 10,000 or more years ago, um, all the way up till today. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay is uh, part of Maryland's history. They are discussing uh, creating a new type of national park for the Chesapeake Bay region. Obviously, unlike, you know, Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon, you can't tell all the, you know, 180 million people that live here to move. Um, but they all want to make uh, the Chesapeake Bay a way to, um, uh, to to celebrate its history, but also help with the environment with that. So, um, so I encourage you, if you are living in Maryland, um, you know, put your feet into the Chesapeake Bay and, and feel those warm waters and think of crabs and oysters and, and seafood. So um, it's a lot of information. I tried not to talk too awful fast, um, but does anyone have any questions about the history? Uh, we have a phone number, area code 501, ending in 954. Okay, this is Teresa listening in here from Little Rock, Arkansas, and I was curious, now what was the purpose behind the sock burning? Was it just something they did? Well, it was, it's, it's kind of falls in line of the superstition of, you know, okay. sailors and, and watermen have, you know, naming. Right. So watermen in the region always named their boats after women. So it's a superstition. So the idea is that you have your holy old socks and you're throwing them away in your essence. Uh, usually sailors and watermen are, I guess, are not wearing socks in the summer. Um, but you're, you're kind of starting fresh in the idea of starting fresh in the new year and hopefully for a good yeah. seafood harvest for that. Oh, okay. So, okay, I was just curious. <laughs> that's all right. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting tradition. Most people don't think about burning right. socks. No, no <laughs> most people don't. <laughs> and I found this very interesting. And I'm glad people are thinking about, you know, recycling, putting the um, oyster shells back into the bay so that the uh, the uh, fertilized oyster eggs can, you know, latch on. Right, right, yes. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Any more questions, anybody? Is there a Gary out there? I see Gary's hand raised. Yes, Gary. Yes, Gary's hand is up. I just mm -hmm. want to tell you what a what a very nice job you did with this. Um, it really makes me feel at home because I'm from the eastern shore of Maryland, and boy, we had plenty of watermen down there who even spoke. Uh, they would say the water is very calm out here today instead of calm, and uh, it was quite an uh, an industry and. Uh, and I love oysters, so I, I just thank you for doing such a good job with this. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I encourage people to try oysters if you haven't. Most of the oysters you can buy in the grocery store, no matter where you live, are, are you know, only pretty close to where they came from, the Chesapeake Bay. So a nice oyster stew um, with a little bit of uh, Old Bay seasoning on it is the way to go. Now, I like scalloped oysters better. Which is oh, like a, yes which is like a casserole. It's like cracker crumbs and oysters. And I don't know what I'll put in a baking dish and bake. That's I love them that way. Oh but yeah. Oyster yeah. fritters. Oyster fritters are good. That's fried oysters. Some like raw oysters. My brother likes oysters Rockefeller, which is cooking Jeez. them. Yeah, raw, <laughs> raw, but cooking them, you know? So. Yes. Yes. Anyone else have any other questions? I am. Uh -huh. 
I have a question about mm-hmm. the health of the bay. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's some organization that measures the health of the bay each year and it gets a score or something. Is it is it getting better or is it, you know, I guess now with all the things we're doing to improve the health of the bay, is it helping? I think, um, actually, I saw a presentation from the oh. Chesapeake Bay um, um, Alliance. There's a number of organizations and a number there was and there was an agreement in 2014 between Pennsylvania, New York, um, Maryland and Virginia. Um, and I think Delaware is included um, about the health of the bay. So they've set in motion a number of things um, to try to help the bay. Um, but unfortunately, um, you know, with watermen, you know, they want you to be able to harvest more oysters and because it's their livelihood, they've got to, you know, make a boat payment, they got to pay their, their rent. Um, but then the environmentalists don't want that. There's also an increased um, number of um, manure based animals. So like, you know, on the Eastern shore, he was mentioning, there's a lot of chickens. Um, there's a lot of uh, cattle, and so that that impacts the Chesapeake Bay in um, the number of people on it. They said um, the rockfish have gone down in the Chesapeake Bay in a recent report is because people catch them, but they're only allowed to catch one. So they catch one. They're like, okay, this is a good size. Let's keep it. And then they catch another one. I'm like, well, wait a minute. This one's bigger. Let's throw this one back. And then when they throw it back, dies. So there's a lot of things that we can still do in the Chesapeake Bay to help it. Um, seawater rise is a concern in the Chesapeake Bay, as well as well as warming of the water in the Chesapeake Bay is a concern for the animals that are there now. Um, they're actually the water is getting warm enough; they're going to start shrimp. There's some a few shrimp culture, you know, uh, harvesting shrimp in the Chesapeake Bay, which has kind of been unheard of before. So there's a long way to go for the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, this is Pat Sheehan. I just want to say thank you very much for such a great presentation. I knew I was going to enjoy it when you started back with how the bay was formed with the glaciers. I felt like I was reading a James Missioner book again, which oh, always yes. starts way far back. I mean, just fascinating. So I'm I'm hoping we get this one podcasted because I would like to go back and listen to this again. What a terrific set of history. And you you uh, you just know it so well and tell it so well. It's just just really wonderful. I had no idea about the oyster wars between uh, New Jersey and yes. Maryland, New York mm-hmm. and Maryland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, yeah that didn't get um, that didn't get into my history books in Massachusetts when I was growing up. So I missed. Uh, <laughs> well, um, there is a there's a you know for everyone else to know there is uh, James Michener did write a book called Chesapeake. Mm-hmm. And I know it's it's been out for a while and is in audio form. It's a really, really long book. So it is a bit of a dedication to listen to it um, with that. But it talks about he did an excellent job of researching and he has, you know, fictional characters in it. But it, do, it is based in history. So it, it is an interesting book. So I encourage you all uh, to download that version. And if you have a few hours and you want to listen to a book, I kind of skip over the part where, you know, they talk, have the animals talking, you'll, you'll find out, but yeah, the early history (laughs) and so forth. um, It is very interesting and it learns more about the bay. And he as a wonderful author does a great job of describing everything. Oh, that's good to know. He was authentic. That's good. Good to have someone checking his facts. Right. Right. What a wonderful presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Thank you. Well, I will sign off and thank you again for inviting us to speak. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And, you know, again, you can find us at the Annapolis Maritime Museum. Um, and, you know, if you're in the Annapolis region, come on down and we have um, some um, interesting things about oysters or just go home and, you know, as you're at home, uh, get, your, get you some oysters. Don't get the canned ones, get the fresh ones. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank, Thank you very much. Is I don't know whether our next presenter is here. Uh, Linda Harris from. Um, I, I, I just sent her an email because the phone number I got, they said it was the wrong number or something. So I just sent oh, her an email. Yes, I've, let's see. Because I've called her on that number. Wow. Um, it's, um, let's see. 301-310-3296. Uh, what was the area code? 301. Oh, 301. Oh, okay. 301. I think I dialed it. I'm sorry. 310, so 310, I'll, I'll that. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Do we have door prizes? Everyone? There, there do we have any door prizes, Jane? Uh, do we want to do a door prize? Sure. We can do that. Okay. Sandra has any? Sandra, you want to, if you want to do a door prize. Pardon? I said we have tons more. Oh, good. Well, let's just do a couple. All right. So next up is a Braille print magnet from National Braille Press. And it says, we do not remember days. We remember moments. So, yes, okay, that's what it says. Amazon, stop. Amazon, give me a (laughs) random number between one and 104. Oh, now I've insulted him. He's not talking. Amazon, give me a random number between one and 104. Please. 88. I'd be so careful with these machines. They get excited. 88. 88. Is Sheila Young from Florida? Yep. Congratulations, Sheila. Hope you're enjoying our convention. We're rewarding the Florida people uh, at this convention, I can say. Yep. Florida's in the house. Uh, next door prize is okay. a um okay. It is some body cream, and it it actually no, we'll do this one. It's a it's a selection of magnets, and they're pretty much tactile. They come from uh, magnets. Places, yes. Okay. They come from places like Pittsburgh, New York, Atlanta, Madrid. Hawaii um, and Barbados and New York. Okay. Let's see. Amazon, give me a random number between one and 104. Please. (laughs) 18. 18 is Diane Ducharme. Congratulations, Diane. 
All right, I'm turning it back over to you, Jane. Okay, thank you. Save this file. We just <laughs> saw the, the Harriet Tubman muse, um, a movie last night, so we're very anxious Wonderful. to hear uh, what you have to say about her. We can find out whether the movie was accurate or, or what. So well, thank you actually, so much for being with us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, and I am actually in our little museum on at uh, the Harriet Tubman Museum and Educational Center at 424 Ray Street in Cambridge, Maryland. Harriet Tubman was born in Dorchester County. And what I've decided to do today is I have a book. It's a children's book about Harriet Tubman that was given to me uh, by my father when I was about 10 years old. And this book inspired me to walk the Underground Railroad. So in 2020, I met with several historians and I actually walked from the Brodus Plantation in Cambridge, Maryland, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, to William Steele's house. And that, that, that part of this movie is covered, uh, that part of her journey, the initial journey in 1849, is covered in that movie. That, um, that Hollywood production pretty much covers her first journey to freedom. So what I want to do is I'm going to read uh, some parts of this children's book, and then I'm going, to read, I'm going to sing. I have my partner, David Cole. He's here with his guitar, band guitar, and we're going to sing a couple of songs uh, uh, that were sung on the Underground Railroad. So I hope you enjoy it. So the name of this book is called Runaway Slave. As I said, it was written in 1965, and it's about Harriet Tubman. And it's very good because since I've done all of this research, this book is really quite good that tells her story. Who was Harriet Tubman? Wait, I've got something that popped up on my screen. Sorry. Okay. More than 100 years ago, in the year 1820, a baby girl was born. She was born in a small cabin. The cabin was on a plantation in the state of Maryland. The baby's mother was Old Rit. The baby's father was Ben. They were Negro slaves. So this, you can see this book is dated. It has the word Negro slaves. All the slaves on this Maryland plantation belonged to the master Edward Brodus. The master owned many slaves and now he owned this baby. Her real name was Araminta. The people on the plantation called her Minty when she was a little girl. They called her Harriet when she grew older. Later, she was called by another name. All over the land, she was known as Moses. People said she was like Moses of the Bible. When his people were, sla were slaves in Egypt, Moses led them out of Egypt. He led them to freedom. And Harriet Tubman, like Moses, led hundreds of slaves to freedom. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Yeah. 
Harriet could not fall asleep. Underneath the blanket, the dirt floor was hard, but she was used to that. Her brothers were talking, but she was used to that too. It was their words that were keeping her awake. Terrible, scary words. They say the master has no more money, one of her brothers said. That's why so many of our people are gone, another brother said. He sells the slaves to get money or he sends them away to work for another plantation owner. Who will be next, one of us? Shh, you'll scare the little ones. Harriet whispered in the dark. Please, Lord, she prayed. Don't let the master send my brothers and sisters away. Please, Lord. The next day, the air was warm. The sun was golden. It was too nice a day to worry. But Harriet thought of the words she heard in the dark. Who will be next? One of us? That same morning, a woman came to the plantation to see the master. I want a girl to take care of my baby, Miss Susan told Edward Broadus. I can only pay you a few pennies. I just have to have that girl, uh, Mr. Broadus. I have, I have the girl that you need, Mr. Broadus said. She's only seven, but she can do the work. Miss Susan's wagon took Harriet farther and farther away from the plantation. What her family said, she wondered. How would they feel when they learned that she had been sent away? There had been no time to say goodbye. Harriet found out right away what work she had to do. Miss Susan told her to dust and sweep. Harriet knew how to sweep. She had often swept the dirt floor in her own cabin, but she did not know how to dust. She had not learned, for there were no fine furniture in the slave cabins. Miss Susan whipped her for not knowing the right way to dust. Every day, Harriet cleaned the house and ran errands. Every night, Harriet rocked the baby. Harriet had, had to make sure that the baby did not wake up and cry. The baby slept in a cradle near Miss Susan's bed. Above the bed was a shelf where Miss Susan kept her whip made of rawhide. If the baby woke up and began to cry, Miss Susan reached for the whip. Harriet was whipped so often she had scars on her neck for the rest of her life. One day she ran away, but she did not know how to get home. Years later, Harriet told what happened. One morning, Miss Susan had the baby and I stood by the table waiting. I was to take it. Near me was a bowl full of sugar. I never had anything so good and that sugar right by me did look so nice and my mistress back was turned to me. So I just put my fingers in the bowl to take one lump and she turned and saw me. The next minute, she had that rawhide down on me. Mm. I gave one jump out the door. I ran and I ran. By and by, I came to a great pig pen. There was an old there and eight or ten little pigs. I tumbled over the high part of the fence and fell to the ground. And there I stayed from Friday until next Tuesday, fighting with those little pigs for the potato peelings. By Tuesday, I was so starved, I knew I had to go back to my mistress. I didn't have anywhere else to go, even though I knew what was coming. By now, Harriet was very weak, and I was not able to do much work. So Miss Susan brought her back to Edward Broadus. She wasn't worth six pennies, Miss Susan said. So now I'm going to talk about, so you, you've just heard about Harriet Tubman's story as a little girl. 
about age 10. When she was 18 years old, she went to the Bucktown store to, she was sent there by her plantation owner. And when she was there, there was a young slave boy who was, was trying to uh, flee his master. He picked up a two pound weight and he, he threw it at the little boy. It hit Harriet in the head. Harriet fell out. She developed something called narcolepsy. And it was during those visions that Harriet thought about freedom, what it would be like to be free. And it was then she decided that somehow, someday she would find freedom. So now we're gonna sing Follow the Drinking Gourd. Follow the Drinking Gourd is a song about going north and finding freedom. And the drinking gourd represents the North Star. <coughs> Follow the drinking gourd, follow the drinking gourd, for the old man is waiting just to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gourd, follow the drinking gourd, follow the drinking gourd, for the old man is waiting just to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gourd. Follow the North Star. Harriet was growing up. By the time she was 11, years old, she was very strong. She worked from sunrise to sunset. She plowed the cornfields. She loaded heavy wood into, into wagons. She worked as hard as a man, but she was happier than she had ever been, for she loved being outdoors. Out of doors, she felt almost free. Free. Harriet thought of freedom all the time. Many slaves had tried to run away. The ones that were caught were brought back, and they were beaten. Then they were put in chains and sent to plantation owners who lived in states even farther south where it would be harder to escape. There they were put to work on big cotton and rice plantations. At night, many slaves came to Old Ritz cabin. They talked in whispers. They sang softly of the states up north and beyond, of land, of a land called Canada. Men could be free up north, they said. How do we get there, Harriet asked. By the Underground Railroad, they told her. Is there really a train that runs underneath the earth, she asked. No, one of the slaves said. We call it underground because it is secret. There are secret roads and paths that lead north. There are people who hide away one-race slaves and help them on their way. These people hate slavery. They are called station masters. Their houses are called stations. Harriet listened. Her eyes had a faraway look. The man said, the Underground Railroad has conductors too. The conductors are people who come secretly to the South. They lead groups to, to, of slaves to freedom. They lead them North, always North, always following the North Star. From the, day of her, from the door of her cabin, Harriet could see the bright star shining like a far off beam of hope in the night sky. Follow the North Star to freedom. Someday she would. One evening when Harriet was 13, 
She was working in a cornfield. Nearby stood the overseer. It was his job to see that slaves did their work well. If they didn't, he used a long whip he always carried to beat them. While she worked, Harriet kept looking at one of the slaves. Something was wrong. He wasn't doing much work. Suddenly, he began to run across the cornfield. The overseer shouted at him to come back, but the slave kept running. The overseer ran after him. Harriet knew there would be trouble. She followed the two men to the village store. The overseer wanted to whip the slave right there in the store. He saw Harriet and told her to help him hold the slave so that he could tie him down and whip him. Harriet stood her, her, and shook her head, no. At that moment, the slave ran out the door. Quickly, Harriet stood in the doorway to run to see the overseer running after him. The overseer picked up a heavy iron weight. He threw it at the slave, but the iron struck Harriet's head instead. She fell to the ground. For months, old Rit and Ben did not know whether their daughter would live or die. While Harriet was sick, her master tried to sell her, but nobody wanted a sick slave. Nobody wanted a slave like Harriet who would not obey an overseer. Day by day grew stronger, but she never completely recovered. There was a deep scar where the iron had hit her, and for the rest of her life, she had strange sleeping spells. Harriet never knew when she would suddenly fall asleep. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low. Sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. John Tubman. When Harriet was well enough to work again, there was a new master. Edward Broadus had died. The new master sent Harriet to work for John Stewart, a builder. For a few years, she worked in his field. Then she worked in, his, in other fields. John Stewart could hardly believe what he saw. Harriet was shorter than most men, but she was stronger than most men. She lifted heavy wooden barrels as if they were made of paper. She cut more wood in a day than any other slave. Stewart showed her off. He made Harriet show her strength in front of his friends. Harriet hated that. 
but she felt lucky to be working for Stewart because he let her hire her time. That meant Harriet could work for others. She had to give Stewart $50 a year. If she made more money than that, she could keep it. Stewart and his friends were not only the only ones that admired Harriet's strength. Workers in the field looked at her in wonder. One of them was John Tubman. He was a Negro, but he was not a slave like the others. His mother and father had been freed by their master before John was born. John had never been a slave. When he worked, he was paid for the job, and he was allowed to keep all the money he made. Harriet had never known a man like John Tubman. He was tall and laughing and free. Soon after they met, they were married. Harriet was happy now, except for one thing. She wanted more than ever to live in freedom. Surely John would want her to be free too. She began to make plans for them to run away. By day, Harriet thought about escaping to the north. At night, she dreamt about it. In her dreams, she saw men on horseback riding in the night. She heard mothers and children scream as they were torn from each other. Then the dream changed. She saw a land with a line through it. On one side of the line was slavery. On the other side was freedom. She dreamed that beautiful white ladies held out their hands across the line to welcome her to freedom. She told the dreams to John, but he laughed at her. He said he didn't want to hear her foolish talk about running away. Harriet did not understand. John was free. Didn't he want his wife to be free too? At night, she looked up at the sky, at the bright North Star that would guide her to freedom. And she knew that she could not share her dreams and plans with John Tubman. She had to go without him. One day, about four years after she was married, Harriet learned that she was going to be sold. She was going to be farther south to work on a big cotton plantation. This was the time to escape. This was the time to run away to the north. Harriet remembered the name of the white woman who had once promised to help her. The woman lived in Bucktown, not far away. Her home was a station on the Underground Railroad. Was the woman still there? Would she remember Harriet? Harriet decided not to wait another day. Two of Harriet's brothers were going to be sold too. They said they would escape with her. Harriet could not say goodbye to anyone, not even to her mother and father. An escape had to be secret. That evening, she walked past the slave cabins and in her low, deep voice, she sang, when the old chariots come, I'm going to leave you. I'm bound for the promised land. Friends, I'm going to leave you. Later, after she was gone, her friends and family thought about that song. They knew it was Harriet's goodbye message. They knew that the promised land was the north. The sky was clear. The North Star was bright. When Harriet and her brothers started out, she was glad that her brothers were with her. There was danger ahead, but she did not feel so frightened with them along. Harriet led the way and they started through the woods. Her brothers jumped at every sound. They were afraid the slave catchers would be after them with dogs to track them down. After a while, the brothers stopped. They whispered together. Then they told Harriet they were turning back. They said it was too dangerous. 
and that they would surely be caught. Harriet tried to make them change their mind. Yes, it was dangerous, she said, but wasn't freedom worth the danger? But they would not go on. Now Harriet was alone, but she didn't feel alone. She felt that God would take her. I'm going to hold steady on to you, she prayed, and you got to see me through. All that night, she walked through the woods toward Bucktown. She was tired, frightened, and hungry. Was she being followed? Harriet listened for the pounding of horse hoofs, but the only pounding she heard was the sound of her own frightened heart. She listened for the barking of the, do of the slave catcher dogs, but she heard only the sounds of the forest, the running brook, the blowing leaves. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long way from home a long way from home sometimes i feel like i'm almost gone sometimes i feel like I'm almost gone. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone. A long way from home. A long way from home. At last, Harriet came to Bucktown. She found the house of the woman who had promised to help her. The woman remembered Harriet. She invited Harriet in and gave her some food. She told Harriet where to go next. She told how to find the next station on the Underground Railroad. Harriet was traveling the Underground Railroad at last, traveling north to freedom. By day she hid, she slept wherever she could. One day she hid in an attic, Another day she hid in a pile of potatoes under a cabin floor. By night she moved north. One night she traveled in the bottom of the farmer's wagon. She hid under a pile of corn. One night she crossed a river in a rowboat. It was so dark she could not see the man who rode the boat. Many nights she walked along through the woods and the swamps. On clear nights the North Star was her guide. And when clouds hit the stars, she found her way north by touching the trees. She knew that thick moss grew on the northern side of the trees. After days and nights of walking and hiding, she reached the state of Pennsylvania. Now she was safe. No one would make her go back to Maryland. Pennsylvania was a free state. No one in that state was allowed to own slaves. And most people in Pennsylvania were glad to help runaway slaves. I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. Now I was free, she said later. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, 
and I felt like I was in heaven. Then she thought of her family back in Maryland, and she made a promise to herself. I had crossed the line of which I had so long been dreaming, she said. I was free, but there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land. And my home, after all, was down with the old folks and my brothers and sisters. But I was free, and they should be free. I would make a home in the north, and with the Lord helping me, I will bring them all there. I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes. I'm gonna put on my shoes and walk on up to God's heaven. Walk on up, walk on up to God's heaven. I got a song, you got a song, all God's children got a song, my Lord. I'm gonna sing my song, gonna walk on up to God's heaven, heaven. Walk on up to God's heaven. Walk on up to God's heaven. Mm. I got wings. You got wings. All got children got wings. Oh Lord, we're gonna put on our shoes. We're gonna walk on up to God's heaven. Heaven. Walk on up to God's heaven. We're gonna walk on up. Walk on up to God's heaven. Mm. Walk on up. Walk on up. We're gonna put on the shoes, we're gonna fly on up, we're gonna sing our song, we're gonna walk on up to God's heaven, 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 we're gonna walk on up to God's heaven, Lord, Lord. Harriet Tubman, conductor. Harriet walked on to the city of Philadelphia. She had never lived in a city before. At first, Philadelphia seemed big and unfriendly, but Harriet soon made friends and found work. For more than a year, she cooked, cleaned, and scrubbed floors. She saved every penny she could. In Philadelphia, she heard of a place where slaves had escaped, could help. Harriet often worked there after work. She met other slaves who had run away from their slave masters. She listened to their songs, and sometimes she heard news of families. In December, 1850, she heard about her sister, her sister's husband, and their two children. They, too, had tried to run away. They had got as far as Baltimore, Maryland, but no place in Maryland was safe for a runaway slave. Now they had to get to Philadelphia. Harriet went secretly to Baltimore, and from Baltimore, she set out to Philadelphia, leading two grown-ups, a small child, and a baby. Her own escape had been dangerous and frightening, but then she had only herself to worry about. Now she had to worry about four other people. It was winter. The snow lay on the ground. They walked and walked until the shoes split open and their feet became numb with the cold. There was an extra danger in traveling with small children. What if they cried? A slave catcher might hear. Harriet was prepared for this danger. At night, she gave the two children medicine to put them to sleep. Through the long, cold nights, the grown-ups took turns caring for their sleeping children. By day, friendly people, members of the Underground Railroad, hid them in their homes. 
No one knew how frightened Harriet was. Her courage gave the others the strength to go on. At last, Harriet and her little group reached Philadelphia. She had made her first trip as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. But runaway slaves were no longer safe in Philadelphia or any other place in the North. A new law said runaway slaves had to be sent back to their masters in the South. Anyone helping the runaways could pay a large fine or be put in jail. This was the fugitive slave law of 1850. Some people who owned slaves said that now their slaves would not dare run away, but they were wrong. More and more slaves escaped. More and more people helped the slaves to freedom. Now there were underground railroad stations all the way to Canada, and in Canada, runaway slaves were safe. The new law did not stop Harriet. She made many trips back to the South. She helped many slaves escape from their masters. Nighttime, daytime. In the five years before the beginning of the Civil War, on the plantations in Maryland where they talked about Harriet, they called her Moses. In the North, too, she was known as Moses. In the little slave cabin, they whispered her name and hoped she would come soon. In the big plantation houses, the masters wondered, who is this person called Moses? A Negro woman walks down the street. A big sunbonnet covers her face. She carries two chickens and walks bent over like an old woman. Suddenly, she sees a white man coming toward her. Quickly, she lets the chickens, lets go of the chickens. The man laughs to see the old woman chasing two chickens, chickens across the road. As soon as he was out of sight, the old woman, woman laughs too. Her trick had worked. The man did not recognize her. The man was her old master. The woman was Moses again. Nighttime. In Wilmington, Delaware, the house of Thomas Garrett is being watched. Everyone knows he is a friend of the slaves. Everyone knows he hides them in his house and even gives them food and money and shoes. The people who keep watch on his house would like to catch him helping a runaway slave. They would get an award for returning a slave to his master. The door at Thomas Garris's house opens. There he is. But the woman with him can't be a slave. She walks like a great lady, and her gray silk gown and heavy gray veil are the clothes of a lady. Mr. Garrett takes her arm and leads her to his carriage. The carriage drives away. It was Moses again. Daytime. A woman sits at a railroad station. Nearby, two men are talking about a big reward. $40,000 for Harriet Tubman, dead or alive, one of the men, one of the men say. Then the men see the Negro woman sitting in the station. They stare at the deep scar on her forehead. Quickly, the woman opens a book and pretends to read it. She hears one of the men say, that can't be the woman we want. Harriet Tubman can't read or write. But it was Harriet Tubman. It is one that they call Moses. Go on or die. Eleven slaves walked through the woods. They were cold and hungry. It was dark night, so dark they could not see one another. Yet Harriet led them as if the sun was shining. The slaves spoke in whispers. Their words were full of fear. 
They could hear the barking of dogs. The slave catchers' dogs were after them. Harriet knew of a stream nearby. The night was a bitter cold, but Harriet made them all wade in the freezing water. The dogs could not smell them in the water and could not track them down. The slaves stayed in the water until they no longer heard the dogs barking. They walked for weeks and weeks, and they were still far from Canada. They were hungry. Harriet found apples, berries, and corns in the woods. She found fish in the river, but there was never enough food. Harriet tried to cheer them up. She told them that they did not have far to go. When dawn came, she left the others hiding in the woods and went to the farmhouse. But when she knocked on the door, the stranger's voice answered, where is the man who used to live here? Harriet said fearfully. The strange woman's voice was mean. He had to leave for helping slaves. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the waters wait in the water wait in the water children wait in the water god's gonna trouble the water who's that child dressed in white must be the children of israelite Who's that child dressed in red? Must be the children that Moses led. Come on and wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God's going to trouble the water. Harriet told the group, what had happened? There was a long silence. And then a very frightened slave said, I'm going home. We'll never get to Canada. Harriet could not let the slave go back. It was too dangerous. The master would force him to tell them about the secret uh, underground railroad, the paths they walked, the houses they hid in, and the people who helped them. From her pocket, Harriet took out a gun she always carried. She pointed it at the frightened man's head. You go on, she said in a steady voice. You go on or you die. The group went on together. They followed Harriet. She led them to a swamp. The swamp was so cold and wet and smelled so bad that Harriet knew no enemy would look for them there. But Harriet hoped and prayed that a friend would come to help them. Perhaps a member of the Underground Railroad had seen her visit the house. The slaves hid in the tall, wet grass for hours, too miserable to talk. Harriet prayed silently, I'm going to hold steady onto you, and you've got to see me through. At dusk, they saw a man walking on a path at the edge of the swamp. He seemed to be talking to himself. But Harriet heard his words. My wagon stands in the barnyard across the way, he said. The horse is in the stable. The harness hangs on a nail. The man walked away. A friend had come. When it was dark, Harriet went to the barnyard. There was the wagon. There was the horse. And in the wagon were food and blankets for all. She hurried to tell the others. 
Tears of joy streamed down her face. Praise God, they said. They were on their way to freedom and Harriet was leading them there. A sad Christmas for old Rit. One day, a letter came to a plantation in Maryland. It was addressed to Jacob Jackson. In those days, the postmaster opened all mail addressed to Negroes. The letter to Jacob Jackson said, read my letter to the old folks and give my love to them. Tell my brothers to be always watching. And when the good old ship of Zion comes along, be ready to step on board. The letter was signed, William Henry Jackson. When Jackson lived up north, he was Jacob's adopted son. But William Jackson did not know any brothers. His letter made no sense to the postmaster. Jacob Jackson was sent for. He was asked to explain what the letter meant. Jacob read the letter. He pretended to read very slowly. Then he said, that letter can't be for me. I can't make head or tell of it. Jacob hurried off. He had important news to tell. That letter was from Harriet. She had never learned to write, so she had someone write for her. But Jacob knew what the letter meant. Harriet was coming for her three brothers. They must be ready to go at any moment. And just in time, Jacob thought. For the day after Christmas, Harriet's brothers were to be sent much farther south. Harriet reached the plantation the day before Christmas. She hid in a little sack where the corn was kept. That night, her brothers met her there. They brought her them, two other men who wanted freedom too. They were wide cracks in the board of a little shack. Harriet could peer through the cracks and see the cabin where her mother and father lived. She had not seen old Red or Ben for six years. She missed them terribly. Harriet sent the old, the two strange men to the cabin to wake up her father. She told the men to be sure not to tell her mother. Her mother would surely try to keep her three sons on the plantation. And if her mother saw Harriet, she might cry. Their hiding place might be discovered. A little later, their father, Ben, came to the shack to bring them some food. He talked to Harriet and her brother, but he would not look at them. But when, he, but when Ben knew that after Harriet had left with her brothers, the master would send for him. Have you seen your children, the master might say. Ben had never told a lie in his life. He wasn't going to start lying now. No matter how badly he wanted to see Harriet or her two brothers, he never raised his head. The next day was Christmas. All day long it rained. All day long they waited for nightfall when they could escape. They could see old Rit, their mother, come to the door of the cabin. They could see her watching the road for her boys. Every year her son spent Christmas with her. Every year she cooked a special Christmas dinner for them. Now they could see old Rit watching and waiting. They could see how she looked when she turned and went back inside. Harriet longed to talk to her mother, to throw her arms around her, to kiss her, but she didn't dare. Late that evening, she left her hiding place and crept up to the old Rit cabin. She saw her mother sitting in front of the fire, just sitting there with her head in her hands, missing her children and wondering what, what, what had happened to them. With tears in her eyes, Harriet watched old Rit for a long time, 
Goodbye, mother, she whispered softly, so softly her mother could not hear. I'm coming for you soon. I'm coming to take you north. Then she turned away and went back to the others. That night, Ben came to the shack for the last time. He wanted to walk with them a little way. He had tied a handkerchief over his eyes so he would not be able to see his children. Harriet told her father about her trips. She told her about the other children who were living free in the north, and she told him to wait for her. One day she would come for him and Old Rit, and she did. Old Rit and Ben were over 70 years old when they made their escape with Harriet. Thanks to Harriet, they lived the rest of their lives in freedom. Thanks to Harriet, more than 300 slaves reached freedom. She used to say proudly, on my Underground Railroad, I never ran off my track and I never lost a passenger. the story of the runaway slave Harriet Tubman who found freedom initially in 1849. She made 13 trips. Her last was in 1857 when she freed her father and mother, Old Rick and Ben. They got to Canada and in the last days of Harriet Tubman's life, she bought a house in Auburn, New York. There she took in older people and homeless people took care of them, gave them freedom, and she ended her life um, due to pneumonia. After all of those years, all the toil and, and pain and anguish and helping people, caring about people, she died at the old age of 91. And that's our story about Harriet Tubman. Thank you so much for listening.
God's gonna trouble the water. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the water. See those children dressed in red. Must be the children that Moses led. See those children dressed in white. Must be the children of the Israelites. Come on and wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the waters. God's gonna trouble the waters. God's gonna trouble the waters. Thank you so much. I'm Linda Harris. I'm the director of plan of events and activities activities at the Harriet Tubman Museum in Cambridge, Maryland. And I'm so happy that my friend David Cole could accompany me in the songs and this presentation to you. It's been quite an honor. And I'm happy to answer any questions about Harriet Tubman at this time, if there are any. Sandra? Good afternoon. Um, I just wanted to say, wow, your, the presentation is so moving in the guitar the music and your song you are an amazing songstress um thank you i was just wondering um since the pandemic is is kind of easing up does are there tours that people can come to the museum or no Oh, no, absolutely. So what we've done here, we, we reduced our hours. At one point, we were open five days a week. But now we're open Thursday through Saturday uh, from 12 to 3, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 12 to 4. We are happy to give tours. We uh, get quite a few uh, guests here during those three days. We had a bunch of folks here today. And one of the things, as I mentioned earlier in my presentation, I've actually walked the Underground Railroad uh, from... Cambridge to Philadelphia, and I lead tours. This year, we're going to lead shorter tours uh, between the two um, counties, Dorchester County and Caroline County, where she was enslaved. So we're happy to have guests. If you have a group or plan to come, just give us a call, and I will give you a special lecture and uh, a tour of our museum. Thank you. Wonderful presentation. Are there any other questions? Yeah, Robert Acosta has his uh, hand. He may go ahead. Thank you. I'm calling from California. Tremendous presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to say that you guys might want to hook up with Ira, A-I-R-A, because they do museums like yours. They they did the Negro Leagues and baseball and so forth and Cooperstown. And this is this is for the world to hear. This is so good. My question is, did not Harriet Tubman, who's wonderful, did he, did she not suffer from sleep apnea and and fell asleep sometimes uh, because of of a common thing that many of us have? Have you heard about that? Oh, certainly. So when she was hit in the head, um, 
as I mentioned in it, we talked about it in the book, she developed something called narcolepsy, right? Okay. So she frequently working in the fields as a young, uh, after, after being hit in the head, and she was a teenager at the time, she would fall out um, and have these visions. And many historians believe that the visions, she had such strong faith in God. And she believed during these periods of, of, of an inability to sleep, uh, or fall out or faint that she was making a d- direct connection to God. And it was God that told her that she should find freedom. And that's what propelled her to find freedom on her own and then come back 13 times. She was the only slave that did that uh, during the period of slavery. And that's why she's so well known. But she does, the historians do attribute her desire, her, her perseverance, her strength. Um, they tie that those uh, virtues, if you will, to having developed epilepsy or narcolepsy. Thank you so much. Certainly. Hey, Nanette. Um, hi. Can, can you tell us about the museum itself? What is in the museum? Oh, certainly. Um, so we are, this museum, it's, it's in Cambridge, Maryland. It's downtown Cambridge. It was a museum that was developed out of a grassroots effort of some African-American families who lived in Cambridge uh, 50 years ago. Uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, there was no discussion of Harriet Tubman in the schools. So these people who are now much older as children didn't know about Harriet Tubman. They didn't know she was born here. So they got together. They formed an uh, organization called the Harriet Tubman Organization, and they got raised money to open this museum. Now, we've since in Cambridge, the federal government stepped in and in 2018 opened a huge museum in honor of Harriet Tubman. It was a, it's a $23 million uh, museum that has a host of exhibits. Um, but here in our museum, we have a small museum. We've got, we get donations. We've got pictures of Harriet Tubman. We have reading boards about Harriet Tubman. And as I said, one of the things that keeps us viable is our passion. And we take the time to tell you the stories, give you lectures, and do walking tours. Um, we sell merchandise and we show a couple of movies about Harriet Tubman, William Still. And uh, as, I, as I said before, we've got these amazing artifacts that have been donated to us that uh, uh, are from the period, uh, during a period of slavery. We've got uh, pieces of uh, furniture and items that wouldn't have been in slave houses. So we're very proud of the exhibits that we have here. Okay, uh, next we have Cache. What, what a great presentation, a great depiction of uh, the Harriet Tubman's life. And I just wanted to say thank you for your presentation. It was awesome. Thank you. Reverend Ray on the panelist side. Okay, yeah, that, that was a very fine presentation. Thank you. A question, when um, during her latter part of her years, uh, what what was her family situation? Do do you have any information about that in terms of her brothers or sisters? I mean, uh, uh, just what was her family situation? The movie said well, she got family, married again. Well, and she did. So um, she, you know, she served after she after she uh, freed uh, seventy people, and she assisted in 
helping 70 other people find freedom. She worked as a, as a, a cook, a nurse, and a scout in the Civil War. She was the only woman, only African-American woman, only woman to serve in the Civil War and lead a, lead a uh, troops, if you will. So she marries a man named John Davis, who had also been in the Civil War. She was 22 years older than he was. Mm. And they made their home in uh, Auburn, New York. They bought a home. They were they were given money by um, Stu- Seward. He was Secretary of uh, State under Abraham Lincoln. He had some land and a house in uh, Auburn, New York, and he gave Harriet Tubman money uh, to buy the house. So there she, with her husband, John Davis, they adopted a young girl named Gertie. Uh, Harriet Tubman never had children of her own. We don't know what happened to Gertie, but as I said, she came back in um, 1854 to rescue her brothers. They were their last names were Ross. Her her birth name was Araminta Ross. So her brothers uh, Ben, Robert, and Henry. When they got to freedom in the New York area, they changed their name to Stewart. So the name Stewart is connected to Harriet Tubman or Harriet Ross. Araminta Ross, the name Tubman, uh, any Tubmans would not be related to Harriet Tubman because she married um, Tubman when she was young and enslaved. And once she left and came, she, she did come back to get him, but he didn't want to go. So there's no t- connection on the Tubman line. It would be the Ross line and the Stewart line. Now, there are many descendants and uh, relatives in Cambridge now many losses that are um, from Harriet Tubman's line. Okay. And Barbie, um, you should be able to talk. Hi, I'm Barbie. And I would just like to say, as everyone said, thank you very much for your presentation and singing in the period of that timing. And is there any um, things or knowledge about what had happened to her siblings that she were able to rescue at that time? And also, are you in collaboration with the African-American Museum and have any um, things that you sent there or, or some connection with that museum at all? Thank you very much. Okay, certainly. Well, as I mentioned, her, her brothers, Henry... Ross, Ben Ross, and Robert Ross, uh, she was able to find, get them to freedom in 1854. So they ended up in the north in the New York area um, and in Canada. So they changed their name from Ross to Stewart. So that family line uh, is traceable, and this, the Stewart family is very active in telling the story about Harriet Tubman. Um, so it's it's easy to trace. You could you could Google or uh, you know go online and and put Ross Stewart and find out information about the families. As far as the Smithsonian's African American Museum, we don't we're not tied to them. We don't have any collaboration, um, but we frequently get people from museums that will come from the Smithsonian. We had a meeting last summer actually with the Smithsonian talking about uh, the Underground Railroad more so than Harriet Tubman. So we're, we're independent. We're independent. And as I indicated, we have a federal facility uh, in, uh, outside of Cambridge that 
Well, I don't even think they're connected. I, I, I think both of our museums are independent, but we would certainly collaborate if asked to do so. Okay, we have um, phone number, area code 501-974. Go ahead. Okay. All right. I wanted to say thank you very much. I really enjoyed this uh, presentation. I enjoyed the music behind it. Um, it gave a nice, um, you know, a flavor to what was really going on back, you know, back in Harriet's day. And I want to say thank you very much. And I, um, I listened to the movie last night. Was there a thing where she had jumped in the water, like, the, you know, like the movie depicted? where she, you know, she would rather, you know, drown than been taken back? Yeah, well, no, she didn't actually jump in the river, but there's a story, there's a, um, Box Henry, I mean, um, no, no, Box Henry was a, I'm sorry, I'm getting the stories mixed up. He was a, he was the slave who, who, who put himself in a box and, and put himself on a train. But the, the whole notion of jumping in the, the water in, so the Underground Railroad, Railroad did not start in Maryland. It started in the South um, along the Ohio River. And the story is that a slave was running away from his master and he jumped into the Ohio River and they couldn't find him. And they thought that he must have, you know, he must have uh, gone somewhere to a secret underground area. And that's where you get the name, the Underground Railroad. But Harriet herself in that movie, you know, the movie, the movie was good. And I'm, we're, we're so excited that it brought so much attention to Harriet Tubman. But there was a great deal of dramatization. And that is not something that she did. She did cross a, a stream when she walked her first walk in 1849. In order for her to get from the uh, Brodus Plantation into uh, Caroline County near the Leverton house. The first place she stopped was at Hannah Leverton's house. And at that house, there is a stream that she needed to cross. But that was pretty much the extent of, um, of, of her, you know, being in the water. Be, keep in mind that she walked, she used horses and boats in all subsequent trips to help others find freedom. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Linda. And, and um, your guitar playing, or it wasn't a guitar, it was a David, David Cole. David Cole. <laughs> David Cole. Thank you yes. so much to both of you. That was a wonderful presentation. And we I very do. much appreciate it. Very, very Thank much you appreciate so that. much. All righty. Take care, everyone. Thank and find the Harriet in you. That's my motto find the Harriet in you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. Very much. Sandra, you want to do a couple of door prizes and then we'll start with the low vision panel. Okay. Uh, ready for number 10. This is the 10th door prize. Is that what it is? Yep. It's, I'm, I'm writing them down. Yep. It's 10. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. So next up, we have. Some some more um, body cream. It's called Classic Flannel. So Classic Flannel Body Cream. Amazon, give me a random number between 1 and 104. Here's a number between 1 and 104. 96. Who is 96? 96 is Timothy Hairston. Oh my from, goodness! Yeah. Congratulations, Tim. 
<laughs> you can give the uh, body cream to Doris. <laughs> okay. Um, next is an audio described DVD of the movie Fences. What is the movie again? Fences with Fences. Denzel Washington. That was a wonderful yeah. movie. Yes. Amazon, give me a random number between one and 104. Here's a number between one and 104. It's 47. 47. 47. 47 is Tony March. Oh, very nice. Wow. Right? You should enjoy. Yes. Um, okay. Do you want to do one more? And then just to end on an even number, that was 11. Let's just do one more. So we can, okay. right now we can end on an even number. So next is a a Braille ruler and a Braille calendar. Amazon, give me a random number between one and 104. Five. Five is James Baldwin. What? No, James and Claudia Baldwin. uh, Ah. Registered. So not the author. Oh, I was no. kind of wondering. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Well, okay. Congratulations. And Jane. Okay. I'll save this. Okay. So it is time for the next panel. And to introduce that next panel is Peggy Ann Clark. I'm going to introduce the low vision and technology panel for daily living for daily life jerry marlinden from freedom scientific uh let's see and also we have larry cohen leader of um leisure world visuals Support Services alumnus of the Heinz VA Blindness Center in Silver Silver Spring, Maryland, and Denise Wyatt, a certified orientation and mobility specialist from Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind in Silver Spring, Maryland. Thank you for coming, and I hope I wish you well on your presentations. Who do you want to go first? Um, Whichever uh, I would like to. Well, since Jerry was was first in your list, why don't we have Freedom Scientific first? Sure. Okay. Uh, Okay. He's kind of shy. He He won't speak up. Yeah, I won't. And I, excuse, and I apologize if I mispronounced your last name. No, it's all good. It's uh, it's Jerry Merenden, and that's fine. Everything, everything's good. Um, and again, as as I was introduced, uh, I am with Freedom Scientific, or the parent company is Despiro, and I think most people on here know what we do. Most people know us for the Jaws Reader, uh, 
ZoomText, which is the screen magnification product. So these are these are the quality of life products. Uh, people will see them in uh, pretty much employment centers, uh, federal call centers, federal insta- uh, uh, federal agencies. Uh, but then, you know, as as this is sort of a, a, a titled sort of low vision, sort of in life, or you know what, what people are doing with it, you know. These are products that people use every day, uh, you know, so like our, our Zoom text product, people with low vision are using that at the home PC, you know, coronavirus or COVID, even though we're kind of on the tail end. Um, a lot of people are still doing a lot of the remote uh, teleworking or uh, online banking, uh, a lot of the YouTube, a lot of online training we've now put up to support folks. But uh, taking a step back just to, to in case people don't know who I am. I've been with the company since 2004. Uh, I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area, like literally next to Chevy Chase Circle uh, in Washington, went to D.C. public schools. I have a brother and sister. Both have learning disabilities. They're, they're uh, still in the D.C. area. My sister is a, uh, I think she's a school teacher or teacher's assistant uh, for D.C. down by Capitol Hill. Um, and I myself, uh, I am severely colorblind. And I'm starting to see that we have a new uh, product called the Ruby 10, which has a colorblind tool in it. I'm, I've, I've yet to, to use it, but I've sort of gotten, gotten through life uh, the way many people do. Um, you know, you kind of, you kind of go, go with what, you know, my biggest problem was I can't tell blue from purple and, and, and yellow and green confuse me at times, kind of when those two colors get together. So I have a system at my house where I literally, Blue jeans is what I is what I'll wear if I'm not working, or it's it's a it's a, a great uh, set of slacks and a white shirt because white kind of goes with everything. So I've kind of got my own sort of tricks to to get around. And my mother, who passed away um, a couple years back from frontal lobe dementia, she ended up having sort of uh, at, at the uh, last five years of her life macular degeneration, uh, as well as uh, the cognitive issues. And she would find uh, tricks uh, to, to sort of get through the day. And what I started to notice with her was as her vision started getting worse and she wasn't able to use the computer for the emails and the telephone became uh, tougher to dial, you know, you kind of get the large print telephone uh, with, with the big numbers. Uh, we started to put tactile bumps on her remote control so that she could watch the television. In fact, we even limited it to one television, uh, television channel. These are sort of little techniques that I was using in my life that might be relevant, or maybe somebody on here is doing these kind of things, but you got to kind of keep things simple. And then we gave her sort of uh, some of the, and I'm again in the business and we have a whole line of, I call them traditional magnifiers. and, And many people can relate to sort of the Sherlock Holmes type of lens you know, it's like 11 bucks and sort of the bigger the lens, the lower the level of magnification. Well, my mother had one of those and we actually had about three, one in each room because people pick them up and she would move them around and kind of lose them. But you wanted one at each station, one next to the bed, one next to the television. So if you're going through the guide and again, my mother was born in 1927. So she didn't want to unlearn behaviors. You know, my daughter and the family now, everything's electronic on the iPhones and you can talk to, I won't say it, your, your favorite personal assistant, and it will tell you whatever you want. But when, when you don't want to undo behavior. So, you know, my mother was still writing checks. She didn't do the online banking. So I would literally have to go over 
open up her mail with her and say, okay, I'll write it and then you sign it. And we attempted some of these with the traditional CCTVs like our Topaz, where you put it under and you turn a knob and it makes it real big, real small. But again, there's there's a learning curve for it and she just didn't have time for it. It was almost too much of a frustration for her. And that's the other thing. You never want to... Um, you, you got to kind of make them struggle. I made my mom struggle a little bit because I didn't want her to be dependent on me entirely. You know, otherwise you kind of get that depression going on. You feel like you, you, you just have nothing. So she had to have tasks, things that kept her, uh, kept her going. You know, she liked to play cards. And so we ended up having to get the large, uh, the large print uh, cards for her because she used to play bridge. And these were sort of the participation activities that she would do just to keep her going. And then at some point, I, I think I ended up bringing over uh, one of our floor lamps. Uh, we, we find that a lot of folks, a lot of times it's not just making things big and small with the magnifiers, but it's having the right kind of lighting in the house. And so, some of the, uh, uh, the, light, the lights that we have, so for example, the Stella lights, these are floor light, the floor lamps, and then we have task lamps. So these Stella lamps, they don't get hot, all right? So they're not like a traditional lamp where you burn your hand. They have multiple color settings. You can reduce glare, which is super important because my mom did like to look at uh, uh, the Smithsonian magazine, for example, which is very glossy. And that light used to kind of hit her in the eyes and she'd be like, I can't, I can't look at it. I, I need to, I need something to calm it down. So using the Stella lamp, she was able to, you know, go through the tactile button, sort of lighter, brighter, cooler light, get to that middle middle uh, lighting and reduce that glare off that paper so she could continue to read or, or sort of look, look at the daily news. Um, and again, I don't know. I don't get to see the chat. Is somebody monitoring the chat in case there's any kind of a question uh, with regards to anything that I'm kind of talking about? Because I'm just kind of sp- spilling off from the, from the hip here. I see Pat Sheehan's on and Pat called me a couple weeks back and said, hey, do you want to be on a panel? And I said, heck yeah, I'll be on a panel. Now, I will say this, I, I often joke, I'm more YouTube certified and sort of in the field certified. You know, I'm not an actual doctor or a uh, low vision therapist. Much of what I bring to the table is actually real life experience. Um, stepping back a little bit more about me, you know, I've been a caregiver twice. I was telling you about my mother, but I also from, from uh, <clears throat> this is my first marriage, but my wife, this is her second. And we have a... Uh, a middle child, Christopher, he's 28 now, but I met Christopher when he was four and he stayed with us up until he was uh, about 17. And this is up in Montgomery County, Maryland. So Christopher had the hearing, he had vision. Uh, I was dealing with the AFOs, uh, wheelchairs. So I got to live and really sort of full time, uh, you know, overnight experience multiple, uh, multiple disabilities of my stepson as a caregiver. And again, he did have the vision. So I was dealing with the glasses, um, not, not as extreme as, as, as much uh, of, the, of the magnification products. But at the end of the day, it's also about understanding the person. You know, what do they need? How can you help? But you don't want to do everything for them. So again, with Christopher, a lot of this was, again, because I was the caregiver and I was helping him and I didn't want to dress him wrong. I'd get my wife's help and say, we need about four sets of clothes. Again, these are the little shortcuts that I was using to help him. He liked, uh, 
he wasn't uh, uh, able to walk. So what we would do is we put the television on because he loved colors and he would crawl up and he'd look at the big, uh, the anime. So De- the Christopher's deaf, hard of hearing. So he wasn't able to hear, but he loved the old anime, the Japanese uh, uh, videos because of the bright colors and the way the comic books look. Like if you like Spider-Man or Superman, the way they're drawn with all the, the black and red and the capes, it's that kind of motion that was like really boom, jumping off the page that he liked. So again, for him, it was making it a lot brighter and giving him that sort of attention. And then just to fill people in as to what we do real quick, because I think I've been talking for about 10 minutes. Under the Vespiro uh, umbrella for freedom, again, we do traditional uh, magnifiers. These are, these are things that I'm starting to use when I pull out a dime or a quarter because I like to collect uh, uh, you know, rare dates. So if I find spare change somewhere, I'm pulling out my little you know, uh, illuminated magnifier, turning on the light behind it and checking the date. Is it, is it the coin I'm looking for? So traditional magnifiers, they're illuminated with a light, without a light. Um, there are... I'm not going to call them wearables, but, you know, monocular or binocular or loops. These are lenses that you'll actually wear sort of on your head or on traditional glasses for uh, distance viewing. Um, Again, as I mentioned, lighting, there's various variations of light uh, for the table, for tasks. Some of these lamps will have very long cords. Others will have an actual battery in them so that you're not tripping over. If you need to pick the lamp up, you're doing a task like my mother was an artist. So she would go from one area where she'd have a a table and then she'd go to the other area where she was doing some kind of crafts or some kind of paint. And in this case, she could pick up the lamp with it on and go from point A to point B and just bring that that mini task lamp with her. So again, some are battery operated. Uh, And then we get into the world of, and again, a lot of people know this, these are the video magnification devices. These are the ones that, again, you can put a a document or a newspaper under it and you turn a knob and it makes it really, really big, really, really small, depending on how you turn that knob. And again, you, some of these will even scan and read to you if your eyes get tired with the integrated OCR. But again, this is access to the material. The old uh, adage that I had was when the contact lenses and the glasses stop working, that's kind of when these products pop in. It's the magnification devices it's the quality, quality of, life, uh, of, of, of life products that uh, folks are using, whether it's at home or on the job. So I think I've talked about for 20. Uh, again, if, is there any kind of a question that anybody has? Jerry, I have a question. This is Pat. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've looked at the magnification device that I haven't used in years. What is the voice that, uh, that you're using with the video when it's reading it? Is it eloquence? Uh, you cut out on the back end of that for a second. I lost. So the uh, the uh, what is the voice uh, that's coming out of the magnification device, Jerry? That uh, for the video, is it eloquence? Uh, you know what? I could make it up and tell you. But I don't actually know. It might be eloquence because mm-hmm. of uh, the way we do our licensing. You know, with uh, uh, the jaws, the fusion. But again, I don't right. know what's actually in it. Okay. See, yeah, it's been a while it does since talk. I've. Right. It's been a while since I've I've uh, used the magnification pieces now. Uh, I'm just using basically the scanning. Yeah. Gotcha. Other questions for Jerry? 
No fusion questions huh, from anybody. It could be anything. And you know what? Uh, yeah. You know, we can. Uh, I, I did see that uh, the next, I guess the next person is from Leisure World, which I used to kind of speed by in my old days. But I, I know a lot of residents there that have our products. And maybe maybe this could be a handoff. And if there's a comment, maybe I could even backfill on that. We have a hand. Uh, Jamaica Miller. My question is uh, about uh, uh, the JAWS program, and I'm wondering about this um, screen hunter, whether, whether, whether that program needs to actually be on the computer or not. Um, so if, some, if you know any information about screen hunter and if it's supposed to be with JAWS or not, I would very much appreciate any information you give me. Thank you. Okay, it is, is, uh, what is Screen Hunter? I'm not familiar with it. It is a program that's on my computer. Okay. Um, I do not know any. I do not know much about it. Um, I'm just okay. trying to trying to figure this out and trying to make well, it. I'll tell you what. It. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Uh, I think I can uh, put my email in the chat, or I can share my email with you, or maybe. Um, let me do yeah, that. Let me get, let, have, let me have my email have sent chat. to you and you can come back to me because I'm, I'm going to have to get some information on it. Uh, Jerry, we certainly can connect you with Jamaica. I have never heard of that program before, so I'd be interested in that. That's a new one on me. That would, that would, that would, that would be great if you could. Uh, we'll get you an answer, Jamaica. Co- yes. Connect. Thanks. Okay. Can Absolutely. I jump in real quick? <laughs> Sure. Uh, I just happened to Google that and I just saw it uh, that it seems to be uh, all in one screen capture and recorder screen hunter free plus and pro. So it's uh, the only screen capture software that captures and records large cursors on Windows 10. I don't know if that rings any bells, but it sounds like that might be it. Uh, I'm not familiar with it. I'm going to take a peek. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. Um, Again, I don't want to make anything up. I'm not familiar with it, but uh, I, I will definitely educate myself and ask some of the, the folks at the at the company for some feedback. Fair enough. Thank you, Jerry. Good. Are there any other questions? We are clear of hands. Oh. Clear of hands. Okay. All right. Um, Again, who's that? Who's up next? Who's up next? Okay. Um, on the list I have, um, it's um, yeah, Larry. Um, Larry Cohen? Yes, Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen. Okay. Hey, this Larry. is the only way I get to talk to Pat. <laughs> <laughs> good to hear your voice, sir. I hear we treated you well at the VA. Is that true? Well, I'll tell you, that was what a wonderful experience that was. All right. Good, sir. I'll talk a little bit about it. But, yeah, um, I had the good fortune of uh, going out to the Heinz VA Center in Chicago over the summer for seven weeks. And um, except for COVID, because we weren't allowed any ancillary programs like uh, ball games and horseback riding and all those nice things but i didn't actually go there for that um 
I actually make Jerry happy. I spent most of my time trying to understand fusion. Um, for the most of the, the seven weeks I was there, I spent two to three hours a day with different um, instructors trying to immerse myself, immersion learning. Um, it helped a lot, but I still have a senior moment now and again and don't remember where I am or where I'm going. But the program actually is wonderful because it not only does the assistive technology, like the time you spend on iPhones or uh, the uh, Fusion, they also spend a lot of time I, I, with the OrCam, and um, which I enjoy. But for me, so far, it's been more fun than practical. But I, I, I see the potential, and I, I'm close to getting there. Um, it's very easy to use the OrCam. So uh, for only $4,000, you can have a good time with facial recognition and have it do everything that you could do on seeing AI almost. Um, the other part that was really great is that after they teach you all that stuff, they send you home with it. So it's sort of like uh, the price is right kind of thing. <laughs> You go home with uh, with with this assistive technology that you just learned about. But the people there were just wonderful and um, very supportive, and made you feel really good for being a veteran, and um, almost made me uh, glad that I did some of the things I did back in the '60s. I guess um, with with the military, that is. The other things have nothing to do with this. Um, for for the sake of people who don't know me, I, I've been um, a facilitator for uh, vision support group. Um, when I first moved to Washington 15 years ago, I worked with some other people, and and we had the vision support at at the well, at the uh, VA VA DC. Um, but the la after the Lions at Leisure World. Um, we brought the vision support into into that club with the support of the Lions Club. And um, when we have an excellent speaker, we could have 150 people on Zoom on, at some of those meetings. But a normal meeting is somewhere between 20 and 30 people. And it's a true support group. It's people sharing the things that we're doing here, uh, using a tray to, to prepare your food on so you don't get your kitchen filthy, wear a baseball bat so you don't walk into a wall, or at least when you do, you'll ruin your hat before your nose. And, um, and then other, it's not really a technology as much as just tips. Uh, one of our, our, our best speakers is Jane. Uh, She's been at this a while and, and knows more than a lot of us. Most of the people in Leisure World are going blind. It's a lot of glaucoma, age macular degeneration, uh, and, and, and um, diabetic retinopathy. That's, that's the three big ones. I mean, I have RP, 
but that's a rarity uh, compared to the others. I mean, maybe there's four or five people with RP. So probably the biggest issues that we run into is, uh, is the parts of grieving of, of the denial and anger and, and all the way through to if I, I don't know that I've gotten anybody through to I'm not me personally, I'm not a psychiatrist, but anybody, you know, who gets to acceptance, because I think half, more than half the people in, in the vision support group um, are still driving. So they haven't gotten to acceptance yet. And I understand that because when I got to that level, I didn't want to give up my license. And I was commuting to New York City, bouncing off the Holland Tunnel walls on the way in, on the way out, off the Jersey dividers. And it actually, honestly, I could say I didn't want to stop until I, I took it serious enough where I hit somebody. And um, I, I think that's sobering. I, I don't think that everybody who's low vision or blind has to do that to give up their license, but giving it up is a very difficult thing. And somebody who walks around leisure world all the time, and I see the people driving, I think there's, we have our fair share of blind drivers. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely not a safe place. And, and Jane and, and some of her crew with Terry and some, some of the others, uh, Wayne, Nettle, um, and uh, I don't know who else is in Jane's group, but they're trying to do things to make it a little safer here. Uh, there's, there's very few truncated domes. There are very few curb cuts that are, are uh, negotiable. <laughs> I mean, you can get up and down them, but they may not face each other, or they may you may follow them out to the middle of the leisure world, and people don't use don't stop. And then one car stops, the next car won't stop. And so, even though and there's no lights and there's no stops, you know, there's only one stop uh, on on Rossmoor where you first come into leisure world. So we have a lot of work just to, on our community here, aside from working with each other and trying to get through this. And, and you know, our mantra is the same as most of us. You could do everything that you want to do that, that you have been doing. You just have to find a new way to do it. Thank you, Freedom Scientific, for the things you helped me uh, do. And um, I appreciate it. Uh, I don't know. You know what I have to add to it, or want to add to it, but I, I do agree that one of the greatest things for people with low vision is the lighting, because as you lose your sight, as the people who have know, the, the lights go out. You know, sort of one by one, if you're lucky, uh, until you have very few light cells on the retina that are that are actually firing, and light is the whole story so as it gets worse whether you it, that's why those lamps that he was talking about which slide from cool to uh sun to sunlight or daylight um are, are really important and um 
it's just that and hunting for whatever's new. Oh, I do want to bring up one thing. Uh, for for those of you who know Independence Now or don't know Independence Now, um, they've been an assistive technology company, but their mantra is been aging in place, helping people age in place, whatever it takes. And, uh, you know, some of aging has to do with the eyes, of course, but IN works with everything. You know, they come to your home, they assess it. If maybe you need uh, a, a ramp to get into your home or, you know, because of a wheelchair or whatever, they are pretty good at assessing that and giving you some idea of what you need to, to stay where you are. They have partnered, as I understand it, and they're supposed to come out with it in March which is, seems like it's tomorrow almost, um, they partner with um, MDTAP. Um, for those that know that program, Maryland Technical Assistance Program, uh, the Lending Library for Assistive Technology, they partner with them and they're going to actually have what they have in Baltimore, not, not the, the, the total amount, but they'll have somebody, a professional here in 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 uh, Rockville, in their office in Rockville, they service mostly Montgomery County and Prince George County. I think only, but they're part of a bigger organization. That's the Montgomery County is is the Independence now. Uh, they're going to be our speakers at our next meeting, um, and if anybody wants more information about that, they can get in touch with Jane. Um, I'm passing the buck. Uh, and everybody knows <laughs> how to get a hold. I maintain the list of people. Yeah, you maintain the list. And I maintain everybody the list knows how to get in touch with yeah. you. So, <laughs> yeah, so you're a good person for that. Um, for a lot of things, but that in especially. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I, I think it's going to help a lot that it's here in Montgomery County because that trip to Baltimore to the other end of Baltimore um, as I understand it, it's pretty hard to get to unless you drive. And that would account for, like I said, most of the blind people at New World. Uh, so I, I think that's pretty exciting. It's coming here and it's going to happen next month. Um, <clears throat> anybody have any questions? I, I probably do, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Larry, I'd just like to say something. I think one of the things that you've been able to do, which I, is you're looking for solutions. Uh, how can you do X with the vision that you have right now? So you're not, you're looking how to get like Larry's, uh, like Jerry said, uh, some of it's good lighting, some of it's uh, tips and tricks. Uh, sometimes it's using the technology that you have at hand, uh, you know, and, and whatever can get you there is what works. And I've seen it with, with, uh, you know, with seniors that sometimes you can't just throw technology at them and say, I can do it. So why can't you kind of thing that doesn't help anybody Mm -hmm. just trying to let them see that, you know, if they want to, they want to look at movies or TV shows. Well, there's audio description. If you want to use something like that, or you can get books from the library. If you really want to read, audiobooks and that sort of thing so 
But you don't want to throw all the technology at people. Sometimes it's good to just sit and listen because sometimes it's them talking about their frustrations and getting from point A to point B. I've seen it a lot when people have to move from Zoom from a Zoom text or a fusion type of environment. Now they the magnification is so large that they they're not effective, and then having to admit that their vision is deteriorating. That's tough. I see it with people at work, you know, that I'm familiar with, and and you can't tell them that your vision's not good enough to use the magnification. You really need right. to start switching over to to uh, screen readers. It gets that they'll get there, and I think some of it is listening to people and and just seeing where they are, being an active listener, and maybe giving them some tips and tricks. That you know, I like the one with the baseball cap, by the way. That, you that need could that save one. me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 can, I could do. I could do that one. <laughs> and then one time, uh, one of our people at our our vision support group meeting, it, it could be as simple as she said, "How do you put your toothpaste on your toothbrush?" And so we said, well, stick your toothpaste in your mouth, squirt some toothpaste in your mouth, then stick your toothbrush in there. And she was so pleased to get that little, all that took was just one little piece of assistance. It wasn't high tech, but it was what she needed to know at that time. And we were able to network and give her that information. So that was fun. Yeah, that you, you, I agreed. And and Pat, the the other part of what you said, it, it, I get a lot of complaints from people who get sold things, quote mm-hmm. unquote, from various. Um, I don't know. I call them I, I, as a genre on low vision stores that mm-hmm. um, they can't use. Uh, yeah. I, I can tell you. I probably get two or three CCTVs a, a year from people who have had them for 10 or 15 years. I'm not sure I want them anymore. They're the old screens, a lot of them, but they've never used them. They bought oh, wow. them $1,500, $2,000, and they yeah. sat there. They were never, you know, the husband bought it for the wife or vice versa, mm-hmm. and the, the other person never caught on to it. And, and you certainly don't want to go out and buy something like an Orcam or, or some of the the new uh, wearables uh, that run anywhere from I don't know twelve hundred to four thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, seems to be the, and and they're quick to sell them to you. They they make it sound so exciting and inviting, but like I said, I mean, a lot of the things the Orcam does has nothing to do with me. For example, it will you read a newspaper, it'll read the headings, then you could tell it what heading you want to read the whole story. I, I don't know if you're listening on on one of the lo- online to, to your news, that's not that's not a big thing to you. And you're not going to switch back for sure, because it's a whole other complication and a way of thinking. And the other thing with the with the support groups and and, and also and you know things like ACB and 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 particularly as far as I'm concerned NCAC because that's where I am. But uh, whatever you learn in the meetings here, it's a, the, these these organizations as well as freedom fighters for for better rights and other 
both in the street and, and from Congress and, and other things, is the fact that we share ideas and can share ideas. And, and it is so important. I, I, I just have one more statement to make. I, um, I took the, the courtesy uh, for, for the blind paper from, from uh, NFB and, and I took one from, I think it was Perkins uh, School had had a really good one also and and i i some the language in my mind was a little insulting from from somewhere and and when people when i gave it to people they were they gave it back to me <laughs> so i i put it together and i i worked with a little bit with francie on it and uh it came out really good i think and I, I had to give a speech this morning. Um, it was an inclusion, um, sort of a handicap inclusion Sabbath at, at a local synagogue. And, and so they asked me to speak. And one of the points that, that I tried to make to them is you can have all the words like, um, uh, I'm trying to uh, you know about hum, you know human um, dignity that that you try to to embrace when you when you help people uh, or things like people who you know in healing the world it's not just sending a check it's it's getting you know boots on the ground to go out and help actually help people people who need to walk long distances or or to give people company, people who are brand new blind don't ever leave the building sometimes. They stay in their, their, their apartments. And it would be nice if there was a squad of people that would do things like that. If we, um, but the worst, I think, for any of us that, now that my vision is so small, when, when I go to cross the street, somebody runs over and grabs my cane and tows me across the street, they don't understand why I yell at them to let go, you know. Hey, buddy, I'm just trying to help you. Yeah, well, you're trying to help somebody, and and you feel better about it, but I don't, you know. And I, I I'm not I can't talk for the dogs, but I I have seen little kids say to their mom, uh, "Can I pet that dog?" And, sure. Can't you see that? That woman's working, walking with it. It's a nice dog. It looks calm. And they don't realize that, you know, there's a whole orientation involved and, and, and other things that they interrupt. And, and I, I think it's, it, for me, it, it's important to, they were talking about inclusion. I said, you can't have inclusion without understanding because mm -hmm. you don't even know what you're including. And, and it's important to get the word out with things like that, um, have human guidance and things like that, that help people help people who need it, but really help them. Hi, my name's Larry. Can I help you? Yesterday, I, I went to Starbucks on Connecticut and, and uh, Livingston and, and by Friendship Heights. And... As I was walking in the store, a guy grabbed my arm and said, you're lost. He said, let me get you into Starbucks. 
<laughs> I'm like, wait, well, hold on. <laughs> and, and he walked me into a wall, you know, I, I couldn't even, I was trying to tow my way out. I, I don't know how you stop those things, but um, you have to develop a mean look, I guess. I don't know. But those are the kind of things also that I, I, I like to emphasize in, in the groups and make people be aware and talk about ways that you can have somebody, you know, uh, let go without, because you want people to help you. But I, I mean, when you need the help, but you got to be part of it. And, and they, people need to understand that. Well, we have uh, one more presenter. Yes. Um, yep. I was going to say, um, we, Larry, I appreciate your um, input on um, speaking today, and it was very informative and everything. But we do have um, one more person that needs to speak. And Jane, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Oh, no, you said the same thing I said. Okay. Mine's work in tandem. That's fine. Okay. Um, and we have Denise um, Wyatt. Um, if, if you're ready, you can go ahead. I am. Sure. Yes. I, my name is Denise Wyatt, and I am uh, an orientation and mobility specialist. Um, I'm really glad that Larry brought up people grabbing you and pulling you along. There is actually an O&M technique specifically for that to break holds like that. And that oh, is yeah. exactly the, the reason break. why I called it the that's Heinz exactly break. the reason why that Heinz break exists. Yes. 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 I learned that in school. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's one of those things you you your instructor teaches you and you think, who's gonna grab a person and just drag them along? Well, you would be surprised. <laughs> or probably you guys would not be surprised how often it happens. But once you're in that situation, yeah, it's really good to have that. Um, so I am, um, an O&M at Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind. Um, we are an organization right here in DC that is serving the DC community. Um, so I just wanted to take a little time today to go over, um, some of our low vision services that we offer. And I know we're running short on time, so I'm going to try to go through it kind of quick. Um, I do, uh, I am real fancy today. I'm going to share um, a PowerPoint. Um, so yeah, I'm going to talk about our low vision services today. Um, and that is going to start with our low vision clinic, um, where, which is right in our Silver Spring office. Um, we have low vision evaluations by Dr. Friedman, who is an optometrist specializing in low vision. Um, so if you've never had a low vision evaluation, that covers visual acuity, visual fields, ocular health. And you can explore a lot of the low vision devices that have come up um, earlier in the presentation. Um, you know, the, the video magnifiers, the special lighting, um, glare filters, monoculars, high power glasses. Um, so whatever the consumer will need that um, is available for recommendation or prescription as appropriate. Um, one of our other specialty things that we offer is, offer is not the right word, the mobile eye care unit. Um, 
This is a van that goes out into the community, specifically in underserved areas of the community, um, and offers eye care right there. Um, they offer routine eye care screenings and especially screenings for glaucoma and diabetic retinopathy. Um, and I am going to skip over some of this and play. We have a little video here. I'm just going to play this. This is just a short video talking about the mobile care unit. Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind's mobile eye care unit in partnership with the Retina Group of Washington and Care First. In 2012, CLB launched a mobile eye care unit, which is a mobile eye wellness unit that visits underserved areas in the Washington, D.C. region for the uninsured, underserved, and those who can't afford to lose a day on the job to visit an eye doctor. We bring the doctor to them. With the prevalence of health problems such as diabetes leading to blindness, CLB realized that the health of the local community could be improved through preventative eye screenings. Hi, my name is Dr. Fazia Mirzat. I am an optometrist. I've been practicing optometry for 17 years, and I um, am new to the Lighthouse, call me a Lighthouse for the Blind, and I'm participating in the uh, diabetic screenings here in the mobile eye unit. And uh, we are pride ourselves in early detection and prevention of diabetic retinopathy. We are screening our patients for uh, glaucoma as well. And then we dilate and do a fundus evaluation to um, screen them for any early signs or complication of diabetic retinopathy. The mobile eye care unit provides routine eye screenings, extensive low vision assessments, diabetic eye screenings, glaucoma screenings, and more for those in need. With one out of three people over the age of 65 losing their sight in the United States, and that every seven minutes somebody in our country loses their sight, we can't afford to neglect preventative eye care for those in need. In an effort to give patients the best care, both during their exams and afterwards if they are referred for a follow-up treatment, CLB has partnered with the Retina Group of Washington to ensure ample availability of highly skilled doctors for the mobile eye care unit. As a Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind board member and a retina specialist of the Retina Group of Washington, I fully support the mobile eye care unit. The unit's impact on our community is vital, especially for people with diabetes. Diabetic retinopathy, one of the most common complications of diabetes, is a leading cause of blindness in working age adults in the United States. My colleagues and I at the Red Group of Washington are committed to serving alongside the Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind to provide screenings for those people in our community that are at risk. Thank you. If you would like to schedule a visit from the Mobile Eye Care Unit for your event or to support this initiative, please contact Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind at 202-454-454. Six four zero zero. Okay, and one more program I want to talk about is our Foundations for Adjustment to Blindness program. Now, this is not specifically a low vision program, but it is tailored to each person who is attending the program. Um, it's a five-day long program, four hours a day, and we try to do- offer it twice monthly. It does depend on demand and instructor availability. Um, and it covers a lot of basics in both O&M and independent living skills. 
So if you haven't had training before, or if you had training a long time ago and your vision has changed or any situations like that, where you want to really learn the basics, um, it's a really great program. Um, it is currently conducted by Annie Linda, who is both um, an orientation mobility specialist and a certified uh, vision rehabilitation therapist. I wrote it wrong on the slide. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, one of the really great things about the FAB program is it's um, there are two to four participants in each separate program. And I loved when Larry was talking about it, how important it is for people going through the same experiences to share those things with each other. Because a lot of times people who um, are blind or have low vision are feel so isolated and they feel like they're the only ones going through that. And so having that connection and meeting other people who maybe have the same condition or are having the same experiences is such a fantastic thing in the program. Um, so um, orientation and mobility, some just basic things covered, orienting to a room, human guide, including Heinz break, I hope, um, introduction to the long cane and long cane techniques, um, and parts of shopping, like how to orient to a store and how to solicitate assistance or get yourself a shopper to help you go through the store. Um, and then the independent living skills, cooking, money skills, clothing care, personal care, communication skills, home management, an introduction to Braille, introduction to assistive technology. I mean, Annie really just throws everything in there that she can. She has really squeezed it packed full of so many good information. Um, and then I have a few pictures of some examples of some of the devices that we might be teaching, um, writing guides that can help you with either, you know, a signature guide, a full piece of paper, writing a check, um, and like large print, the bold line paper or bold writer pens, um, large print address books or checkbooks, and then things like color indicators, money identifiers, liquid level indicators. Um, yeah, those are just some of the devices covered. And like I said earlier, it is tailored to each specific person. So if that's not a device that works for you, or if you already know how to use it, you're not going to have to learn it again. Um, so thank you for your time. And I have our contact information up here on the screen. Um, if you're interested in your, in our services, or if you have any questions about it, um, our main number is 240-737-5100, and our email is info at clb.org. And does anybody have any questions either about the services I mentioned or CLB in general or any other questions about low vision or anything? <laughs> we do have a hand for you. Uh, we have... Jamaica. I wanted to ask about how to how to break how to break the um the um how to break the the person that's that's uh that's wanting to guide you uh, guide you because I have never heard of that. And the Heinz break. Yes. Yeah. It it is a technique that involves kind of 
pulling back, putting all of your weight kind of lower and you kind of step back and pull your arm, whichever arm it is, you pull it to the opposite side of your body and just kind of pull all of your weight down and you can even kind of bend forward and just, it's just to break that connection. And then once you break the connection, then you can say, okay, I appreciate the assistance. If it may be you need assistance or maybe you don't. Um, and then if you do want someone help to guide you, you can show them the right way to guide you rather than just grabbing you and pulling you, or maybe you don't need help at all. <laughs> but that is, that is the technique. It's, it's easier if you have an actual instructor who can kind of show you and, and, uh, and watch you do it and demonstrate and, and things like that kind of show you what the body movements are like, but yeah, that's, that's the basic idea. Of course, then there are the people that grab your cane or your dog's harness and haul you that way. Heinz uh, break isn't going to help you for that one. That is but. a good point. I have never heard of a Heinz break for, <laughs> for grabbing your cane or harness. I oh, had yeah, a good thing I, to think about. <laughs> I was starting a new job one day and the, the week before a guy helped me across the street that I wasn't going to cross. Turns out it was my new boss. Oh no. Um, I didn't <laughs> want to cross that start. street. That was not a good start. No, it wasn't. <laughs> oh boy. Nice. <laughs> Any other questions? Our hands are clear at the moment. Okay, well, I'd like to thank our panelists. I think, uh, you know, this was a very good session. Thank you, all three of you. A special thanks to Jerry for the years of uh, support that you've given Merrill and Jerry. Typically, NCAC, you've always been. Pat, your, your microphone's going out again. Oh, my microphone. Oh, yeah. I, I sorry don't about think that. It's your microphone. It must be your computer. Maybe. I just wanted to thank all the panelists. This was a very good session. And I appreciate, uh, you know, what was said here today. Jerry, wanted to give you a special thanks for the, all the support you've given to Maryland over the years uh, to our groups. You've always been there for us when we ask for favors and special requests and supporting our people. And so that that doesn't go unnoticed. Thank you very much for that. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me again. And to all the other panelists, I you guys really carried it. And, and the presentation from CLB, I like that. And don't try the judo move at home, right? <laughs> yeah, Heinz break is not judo. <laughs> yeah, funny. Hopefully it, it does, does not work. hurt anybody. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in years. I learned it in school, but I hadn't thought about it in years. That's wonderful. Yes. Well, Your O&M instructor is always here to remind you. Okay, that's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> um, yes. Um, before we do the um, pre-banquet stuff, I want to answer a question that Sandra and Pat asked yesterday. They said, okay. when did you get these people from Florida? Okay, so I've been on the community calls and I've gotten to know Eugene. Eugene. Um, he does the Wake Up Wednesday call at 11 uh, a.m., and Cachet from the Board of Publications, I've listened to the calls, 
um, for the Board of Publications, and also she's been on the West Coast Cafe. So I called Sheila Young because they both said they wanted to register. They didn't know how to get in touch with Jane. So I said, okay, Sheila, can you give me their information? And she did, and I called them, and and they got door prizes yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, we've got people from all over the country. We've got Mm -hmm. Colorado and California and Wisconsin. Yeah, and um, thank you so much to everybody who is from other parts of the country who's had such information. Uh, has a, such interest in in Maryland and stuff. 